I'm going to say some, I'm not going to say any Latin, actually. I'm going to say some Greek in trans. Oh, no, I will say some Greek. I will say some Greek. Yes. Well, keen. I'm going to put us in the group now. How are you both doing? Good? Yeah, good. Yeah. good. I just want to been on the agenda today, eating some uh, figs and some Greek laffles. I don't like the figs. You don't like Greek figs? <laughs> God, no. Overrated. Overrated, <laughs> eh? Oh, yeah, 100%. Not like with a nice slab of cheese and some olives, though, and a big glug of wine. Don't even like olives, right? That's the that's the um, that's the Welsh in me, though. We just get we just eat stew and some cabbage, probably. Growing stew up. and cabbage, yeah. We're not, uh, like, we're not... They've got cabbage here. There's loads of meat and stuff, like roast pork we had the other day. It was good. Yeah, you probably got fresh fresh produce to be fair compared to us. So yeah, I'm on the old uh, processed foods of here. Uh huh. Where's it? Hold on, let me get us some Facebook. So we're live. Oh, here we are. We're live. Hello, everyone. Donald and Leila. Who's um who's in the Christmas challenge that was introduced to Leila's powerful Latin? I wonder how many people remember that. Changed their life, mind. Hold on. What are, what are, what, what are the languages do you know, Leila? Uh, ancient Greek, modern Greek. So Greek is older than um, Latin, isn't it? Yeah, a bit older. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know why people think Latin. I think Latin is older than Greek. Do you mean? I think people think that. I thought that until I did it on a quiz. I'm not sure why. I think maybe because more people have heard of Latin, probably. But um, like, interestingly enough, like they're actually based. Uh, the Latin alphabet actually comes from the Greek alphabet. So. Um, the Greek alphabet is written from left to right, but at one point the Etruscans took the alphabet over and wrote it from right to left. And then the Romans were like, oh, this is a great alphabet. And they took it over and they started writing it from left to right again. So yeah, kind of between ancient Greek and Latin, there are the Etruscans who were this like amazingly like mysterious society that like the Romans had to fight in order to take control of Italy. Um, to them. Are they the are they the people the Romans like I think I heard a story the Rome formed by the men stealing women from another place. So yeah, so, that, was, that was yeah, exactly. That was the um that was the Sabine women, yeah. So that was like one of the villages nearby. They didn't have enough women or any women at Rome, so they were just like, oh, we'll just go steal some. Um yeah. <laughs> and that's how we've come to this amazing philosophy of uh, Stoicism from the start of this brutal thing. But what are the the Etruscans were Etruscans? What part are they? The bot south of Italy, or were they? Are we talking the, Tuscany? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's where the name mm. comes from. Yeah. Yes. So, so a, lot, yes. a lot of the Roman like myths and folk tales come from Etruscan folk tales as well. So, the Romans had like a thousand different gods for like the tiniest of things. So they had like a God for, you probably heard of this. They had a God for like rust. It was right. like a God of rust. Yeah. They had a God of who? Yeah. They, they, had, yeah. A God they had a God of who God. <laughs> Who's that? Donald. No. That's oh, not oh, so cruel, Scott. Oh, Wait, I will never say that about you. No, no, sorry. You're the God of who. At least I'm the God of who. Yeah, at least you're a God. All yeah, exactly. Like the demigod, <laughs> he was the demigod of Pooh. Yeah, he was like, yes, my father was the god of Pooh, and my mother was the goddess of, or your mother was mortal. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't really yeah. bear thinking about, yeah. does it? 
It's quite, it's quite weird they would have just put a god to everything they saw, as if like, oh shit, that's that's poo. That that must be a god. I mean, why is it? Why so many gods? Why did they not think there's one god? I think it was just a really. I think it's kind of related to like much more ancient religions, which are like animist. So uh, where you because you can't explain everything, you kind of say, well, because I can't explain this thing about like why the flower goes brown in the autumn, I'm just going to invent a god that like turns the flower brown. So it's a way of just explaining the world um, mm. and making it intelligible. Um, so yeah, it harks back to a really ancient kind of way of life, which is very much kind of in nature, but also um, kind of not, not comprehending nature as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, they did have like many, many, many gods and many of them they got from the Etruscans because they so were the sort Etruscans of- Etruscans are the main people. They just didn't have the, the battle power to keep them away, basically. They basically didn't have the battle power, but very yeah. few people had the battle power. In the end, the Romans just came in with their massive swords. Hey, and then they the Scottish. The Scottish kept them away. They were scared of the Scottish, right? They built Hadrian's Wall. Was that the block? Well, I heard a, I heard a very different story, which is that the Romans just couldn't be bothered. They didn't like Scotland, so they, they just didn't fight us. hard enough. Well, or anybody I, Scottish listening to this webinar now is going to send me hate mail. Well, I can just prove that thesis because they uh, they moved the border further north to the Antonine Wall, and then they retreated. So they are. Like, we should do a webinar yeah. on the Romans and the Scots. Yeah. Romans and Scots would be good. Um, there's, a, there's a place in Wales called Camarthen, which was one of the main Roman forts. And oh. uh, yeah, there's a lot of history there with the Romans. It's mental how far they got. They got from Rome on foot to mm -hmm. the UK over the sea as well. It's like, were they, were, how, how long ago before the Romans did they have boats? Like, like oh, okay. the thieves first to make some boats. No, no, no. There are, there are. Um, in fact, there's an amazing. I think the oldest boat in the UK to ever have been excavated is, it's it's in East Yorkshire somewhere. There's a film on it. I'm sure there's a film on it. Yeah, it's really old. It's like five thousand years old or something. Oh. And they found it in the river, and it's just like a beautifully carved out tree trunk. Um, so it's yeah, it would be like canoes in the Amazon or something. But yeah, we had we totally had boats in in, in Britain yeah. before the Romans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, have yeah. You, the, the most important question is: Have you seen the TV show Plebs or Plebs on ITV? Yes, and in fact, my my claim to fame is that I taught at a school, like my school before last was um, UCS, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean this was like we're talking maybe 10, 20 years ago. But one of the people that wrote Plebs was at my was a pupil at the school that I taught at. <laughs> it's so oh, it's good. about, it's just a kind of funny, like life of Brian-ish kind of- uh, In Rome. Not really like- Oh, yeah. I kind of, okay. It's basically three guys trying to get girls in, in ancient Rome. Ancient Rome. And it's just funny. They're like, is, is, it, is it plebs or was it plebs? Because there, there were people in Rome called plebs, weren't there? The poor people. Am I saying No, no, right? plebs, you're right. Plebs. You're saying it right. Plebs is the right, is the right pronunciation, oh, yeah. plebs. Yeah, yeah. It just sounds... <laughs> you're poor and you're pleb. Okay. You're just a pleb. Classic. Yeah, well, you were, I mean, we... not, not necessarily poor. I mean, plebs were not slaves. So there was, there was, there was a class beneath plebs, you know. Oh, so yeah. a slave was not a pleb. A pleb was just, plebs were just the people that, like, you know, voted. They just weren't nobles. Voted people into, 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 into power, yeah. Yeah. The plebs were, like, the power base for, for a lot of Roman politicians. Um, yeah. 
and with with plebs so were they born into like a certain conditioning so you know we're born now we go to work blah 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 were the plebs born they were like you're a pleb so you have to basically do this and that go to school what was it about they didn't really go to school i mean it was pretty hard to be to be born a pleb and to not be a pleb like <laughs> the, the roman orator cicero everybody calls mm. him like a new man and they're really scathing about him because he becomes a senator mm. but he's actually like he's actually only born a knight and it's like okay well like you're born a knight and then you become a senator and everybody's really snooty about him mm -hmm. um but no one really was born a pleb and then i mean it was quite common to like be born a slave and then to kind of like get your freedom from your master and uh you know and then become a kind of um you know, ordinary citizen. Like that was quite common. Um, well, sometimes yeah. like that. Like eventually, over time. Yeah. One of Marcus Aurelius's generals was a guy called Pertinax, mm -hmm. and his father was a slave. Mm. Pertinax became a senior general, ended up becoming Roman emperor. There you go. Briefly. So over generations, over gen you could have you could have social mobility yeah. over generations. Yeah. But this dude was the oh. son of a slave, ended up as emperor. Mm. Like, but you know, by there was a bit of luck involved. Bit of like, yeah. probably, probably a bit of stabbing in the back as well. Yeah. yeah, it was after an assassination. Well, I was listening to a podcast on ancient Rome before I went to Rome, and they said that none of the plebs were able to become a consul for ages or something, so they couldn't have any power. Basically, like the French Revolution, yeah. you know, when it was like the directory and they had all the 95% of civilians, and it was just like the 1% had all the power. It was that similar to now, isn't it? Well, yeah, I've yeah. also read a quote. How accurate is this? Ancient Rome is very similar to modern day anglo-saxon rule like it is now like they're saying like they are the hierarchy that kind of you know you can't get in this is the top boys just playing about if you look at the house of parliament they're just having a laugh mm -hmm. they're just having a giggle playing a game and it's like isn't that like the senate was in ancient rome well i mean i like to think that the roman senate was slightly more serious than the house of commons i mean the house of commons is like schoolboys, uh -huh. you know if you've taught in a public school then you look at the house of commons uh -huh. and you're like oh yeah that's like my year eight yeah that's like my year <laughs> eight having a like a food fight uh -huh. yeah but like year eight's having a food fight with posh voices uh -huh. yeah. Yeah. yeah it's interesting when and then like obviously the the greeks were the first people to do democracy when they they were the first people to bring in right let's like let's actually start voting on people in and that was like, what, 500 BC? What was it? 1000 BC? No, it was, um, yeah. it was, it was, it was like, it was the seventh century. So around like 600 BC. Mm -hmm. um, so they'd had sort of kings and tyrants. And um, then they had this lawgiver called Solon who said, right, okay, we're going to reform the system. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then you basically had, but it was easier to do it in, in Greece because the societies were much smaller. So like Greece was like made up of like hundreds of city-states called mm. polis, which is where we get political from. Um, and because they were, I mean, they weren't all democratic either. Um, so like Sparta wasn't particularly democratic, um, but, you know, because they were like, because they were just we, you know, um, it was easy to kind of do direct democracy. So it was a bit like a, every time they had a vote, it was like doing a referendum. It was like having the referendum again. Um, and unless you were a slave or a woman or a foreigner. Yeah, and then it wasn't, it wasn't particularly was democratic. democratic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So women could imagine, imagine every decision had to go to like a referendum like Brexit. Exactly, oh. exactly. Do you know, there's a famous story about that, isn't there? Because like, orators used to be able to manipulate them. 
So they said that they were going to send a fleet of ships to attack an island because mm-hmm. some guy whipped them up. And then the next day, they felt bad about it. Like, and another orator said, well, this is a terrible idea. Those people are innocent. It's going to kill them. And so they had to send another ship to try and catch up with the, the fleet that they sent. Like, and say, no, 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 we've changed our mind. Like, that was yesterday, right? Like, today, we, like, we realized it was a bad idea. Like, we all had a bit too much to drink, and we did it before. <laughs> and we didn't really mean it. Like, so quickly run after them and catch them and tell them, no, turn around and come home. Because that's uh, that reminds me of the film Troy a bit, and then when they're having, they're drinking about, and they're like together, but they hate each other at the start. And then they go away, one drunk. How many wars do you reckon have been started in ancient times because someone got drunk and decided, fuck it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a war. I mean, well, I, I don't know if you could put a number on number that. Two. I mean, maybe Helen of Troy got stolen because people got drunk. You know, Paris got drunk, and he thought oh, it'd be a really good idea to steal this guy's wife. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And then you wake up on the boat bound for the Bosphorus with a massive hangover an incredibly beautiful woman and a thousand murderous ships behind you, that's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah. Oh, my day. Plus hangover ever, Scott. Literally. Yeah, well. mm-hmm. hangover, really. Yeah. First hangover film. You know, God. What about, what about, inch- so when was the first, I don't know if you know the answer, the first time people started talking about, like, building habits or moderation and lifestyle or whatever, when did people start realising, like, you know, I need to put a control on this. Is it when Rome was at its peak or something? Well, the first record that we have really of people talking about that would be the pre-Socratics, probably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so, um, like, How much control do they have over their life? So, you know, like they were born, like what do you do if you were born poor those days? There was nothing you could do with that. Not really. <laughs> it's just trapped. Yeah. But I mean, but then there's always kind of exceptional individuals that yeah. manage to rise above the, the station, or they, they're just lucky. Mm-hmm. Like, but generally, you had to be kind of fatalistic about things. But occasionally, there's something like Pertinax. Yeah. Like somebody's just in the right place at the right time. And uh, you like know, you in this, like you in Scotland, Donald, you escaped <laughs> the land. You know, I know. Free. Otherwise, I would still be in Scotland. Like shoveling poo. <laughs> I mean, I think the other thing about being being born poor in ancient Greece is that it's you know it's not necessarily the worst thing because you know it's a, a, it's a very agricultural yeah. society. You've got your own plot of land with your family. Um, you know everything that you can eat, you get off the land. So um, mm. you know there's of course there'll be there'll be like famines and stuff from time to time. But um, I think the when we think about like kind of being poor, that's maybe not the kind of emotional experience of, you know, a farmer in ancient Greece. Um, but yeah, they, they certainly like, they talk about the importance of moderation from like really early on, like 600, 500 BC. See Scott, they only had figs and they were happy. I know, isn't it? Exactly. They were talking about moderation back then. Imagine we like zipped one of them to time now. I think they'd have a heart attack, wouldn't they? They'd be like, oh, they'd be, they think we are crazy. <laughs> uh, they'd uh, Socrates. Well, I'm going to talk about Socrates 
And I think it's easy to imagine, like, Socrates today just thinking, yeah, this is, like, the opposite of what I told you to do. Mm -hmm. You'll see, you know, he had uh, a lot of advice about, they always say things about their own society, like, oh, the youth today, they're really going off the rails and all this. And they talk about how, you know, people are becoming lazy and they're, like, you know, squandering too much money on expensive foods and stuff. And that was two and a half thousand years ago. Mm. Like, and since then, it's just kind of continued, <laughs> basically in the same trajectory. So Socrates yeah. was like, yeah, I told you one, guys, this was all a terrible idea. One, one really interesting thing about, about ancient Greece uh-huh. is that, you know how like, if you go, if you're in Greece these days, you go to like a restaurant in the summer and then you like order the fish and then the bill comes and it's like 200 euros. And you're like, why did I order the fish? I assumed it would be cheap because we're like on the sea. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this was genuinely a thing that happened two and a half thousand years ago. So unless you're just eating the little small fish, if you eat a big fish, it's expensive even in ancient Greece. Yeah. And there were jokes in Aristophanes about if you were like, if you were like mm-hmm. rich enough to afford fish, mm-hmm. you were probably a tyrant. So there was, yeah. Why are fish so expensive? Um, because historically, actually, the Mediterranean is not a great place for abundant fish it's too salty um i mean okay you can get fish out of it but it's just not the kind of total abundance of of the really nice expensive stuff hadrian passed a law um capping the price of fish during festivals because he thought when they had a festival it was like woodstock or whatever like like thousands and thousands of people come in Mm -hmm. and the guys selling the fish would go well we'll quadruple the prices yeah like and hadrian thought i'm done with it like that's you guys are just fleecing everybody yeah. Like, so you passed a law saying you can't, no, like, you can't put the price up for a fish. Yeah, like you see, well, they, they, they need to do like, that. They need to do that in that taverna where I was, you know, having yeah. dinner last year and they charged me 200 euros for a fish. You know, like, don't char- overcharge the tourists just because it's the holiday season. Just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, so ancient Rome and Greece was a capitalist society. No, really. Nah, like, it wasn't capitalist. I mean, it didn't have like, you know, it didn't have centralized production. I mean, so, so like all of the, you know, like all of the great art that we have from ancient Greece is like done in tiny workshops or by people just working by themselves. Um, so there's no central production. So it's not capitalist. I mean, sure, people like money. Everybody always hmm. likes having money to, to like, you know, yeah. have nice stuff, but um, it wasn't capitalist. Ancient Greece. With your money as well, you had to obviously protect yourself, I'd imagine. Or was it like a bank? Because if you had to protect yourself, think of the stress on that. You have to go to sleep every night knowing someone could come and steal all your money. That's true. Yeah. I mean, they did have bankers in ancient Greece and Rome. But um, I think if you were just a normal civilian, you probably didn't put your money in a bank. uh, Temples also stored Mm -hmm. treasure. Uh And wills were kept in the temples oh hence the money lenders in uh oh yeah the yeah. story in um in bible. The bible temples have always loved taking cash eh? the religions love it give me some money yeah, I'll keep they, it they, they're always getting raided as well by barbarians they'd be like so Easy. the people would be like oh that's outrageous you barbarians you came and you like you totally ruined our like looted our temple but the barbarians are like yeah but that's where you put all the money Exactly. I'll tell you what. All the money in the temple, we would have left it alone. The the worst thing that anybody ever put in a temple, though, was like when the Ottomans put like loads of gunpowder in the Acropolis, and then the Venetians shot a cannonball at it and brought the building down. Blew up. 1687. Wow, that sounds like a good night. To be fair. 
fireworks it would have been fireworks yeah <laughs> would have woke you up big time but yeah what uh so yeah go on i was gonna say we just saw there's a reproduction of the parthenon in nashville in america they built a full-size replica of the, the parthenon with the marbles in it and everything i like it there's actually there's a there's a replica tuscan castle in Napa Valley, where some guy, an Italian guy, shipped over all authentic Italian things, bricks, mm. whatever, and built a Tuscan castle with a wine, a vineyard. It's insane. It's, it's I, stunning. I would go, rather live there than where I live now. That's how nice it is. And I kept thinking, yeah. wow, if this was how it is in the sun, it must have been quite good. If you were rich, if you were really rich, obviously, if you were poor, like you sucked. I think yeah. I'd like to live in a in a in a castle on a vineyard as well. Yeah, as long as someone else does all the dusting and stuff. Oh, the dusting! Yeah, yeah. The oh, dusting. you're right. I hate dusting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you know that thing where you leave your mobile phone and you can't figure oh, out what's room it's Oh, I know. Like, yeah. yeah. You're like, no, it's too big. Yeah. It's annoying. It gets annoying after a while. Castles. But That's yeah, why I'm downsized. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> what so, about what? It, so money on fish. Yeah. Well, I don't even like fish, so I wouldn't have got ripped off in ancient Greece, to be fair. Oh, you like Scott? You don't like fish. You don't like figs. You like stew. Just like stew, water. Uh-huh. Stew, water, sleep. It's good for lunch, dinner, you know? All these things are really good. But that's it. I mean, that, it comes from your childhood, see? If you let a child try loads of different foods, mm-hmm. it has a better palate. Once right. you grow, you've got to do it yourself and overcome those silly things you have where I won't like it. You've never tried it. Uh-huh. Yeah, but I won't like it. That's what you got to get over as an adult. And that's got to be something psychological, Donald. Well, I try and get my little girl to try lots of different foods. Yeah. She eats mm, she, so a few things. Like, but she likes, now she likes sushi. I, oh. I made the mistake of getting Expensive habit. It gets expensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, fish. See, all, well, sushi's kind of fish, isn't it? Is it? Some sushi. Yeah, some some sushi. Yeah. There we are. But Leila, what about so if people are new to this chat who didn't meet you in the Christmas challenge, mm-hmm. how will you describe yourself in, in a few sentences? Oh, I describe myself in a few sentences. Okay. I yeah. am uh I guess like I'm a I was gonna say ex-teacher, but like I'm not really an ex-teacher, it's just I don't teach in schools anymore. So I used to teach at a school in London called UCS, University College School. And then I taught at Eton, which is probably a school that people have heard of. We've heard of that. And basically I'm really interested in like classics, that's my subject, and in like the relation between like ancient culture and modern life. And so I'm now living in Athens and I'm doing... um, a master's in creative writing and I'm trying to write about like the ancient city of Athens and how it meets the modern city of Athens and everything that goes with that so like talking to people interviewing people um journeying around the city writing about kind of like how the city appears to me um and yeah trying to find those little points of comparison where I feel that like the ancient city is kind of like kind of meeting the the modern city um so yeah i guess i'm like a teacher and a writer um I like it yeah Eaton. Eaton. <laughs> what stories have you got from Eaton? were you there when boris oh. was there <laughs> <laughs> do i look that old oh my <laughs> <laughs> nah nah you would have been you wouldn't have been gone 
Oh, so I couldn't possibly couldn't possibly tell any stories. But um, mm -hmm. I, I will say one thing, which is I think that like, I think that, I think that you know they they kind of wear their amazing garments. You know, they kind of have their incredible like tailcoats and their like bow ties and um, but like strip all of that away and basically boys are kind of the same everywhere i think yeah um, they do just... you think do you think though that because like loads of the prime ministers and mps come from Eton and all those elite schools they don't have real life experience in the working class in the in the villages to, to make decisions for most people but i think that's well i mean that's true of anybody I guess who's been to private school it's not just Eton I guess mm. um but and it's also true of like most I mean it's not just true of prime ministers it's true of politicians um yeah. you know that there is well, I mean I guess actually we I mean now we have a, a, a better number of politicians who have like you know have slightly more diverse backgrounds um yeah. it would help it's it's just yeah, who knows what it is like is it is it is it because it's an all boys club the the, the houses of parliament or is it just because um of a special like confidence and training and like i don't know um just connections yeah i mean connections is one thing but there's also like um yeah i mean i i think it's interesting that... isn't it like how like a such a small area and percentage in, in any country even ancient roman stuff has such an influence over all the people yeah like, is there any examples of that where there's been that that's not happened i mean there's not really when the french revolution turned into a mess so i can't really use that but <laughs> i mean it's like it's always the case isn't it we'll let, we'll... the french revolution i like the french revolution yeah big fan it is i mean i'm not a fan of the killings but i mean it's an interesting time now what do you know what i like about it is like they had the house of reason or the house of wisdom they're like you know let's 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 be wiser let's let's uh let's not talk about religion as much let's talk about logic and stuff and i thought that's quite interesting but then obviously like, like hanging out with donald no it's just what it's like here yeah wisdom yeah. So house. when does the when the Welsh independence movement happens and Scottish Donald, you can set up the House of Wisdom for both countries. But then they've been, yeah, yeah, we could do that. Yeah, uh, or we could just get everybody to come to Athens to Plato's Academy. I think so. Yeah, yeah, that'll be good. That'll be good. I mean, yeah. when when that when that's ready, mm -hmm. there's a party going on in Plato's Academy. They would have. They Plato definitely would have had a party to celebrate, wouldn't he? They did drink quite a lot of wine. Yeah. Yeah. Watered down. What, they watered down. down their wine. Yeah. That's what they say. That's what they say. <laughs> That's what everyone says. I don't think it's true. Maybe it is. But what have you, are, you, are, you, are you doing a presentation, both of you, or are you going to chat habits? Yeah, we have a presentation as well, yeah. Yeah, we yeah. might save Lally's voice a bit as well, so we should probably do it. Will we jump into the presentation then, Scott? Yeah, what, what, I reckon. I reckon. Let's see what we're going. Let's see what's happening. Okay. Oh, you need to set up screen sharing. Oh yeah. I'll do it off you now. You don't need to go to Ethan to do this part. <laughs> I love him. I love, I love him really. I love him really. There you go. I think I've done it. Cool. Uh... Let me okay. know. Yeah. That's it. Cool.
There we go. All right, so we're, Scott, we're going to do moderation and breaking habits. I'm, I'm, I'm well interested in this. I'm in. Right. Just, you know, like breaking, shattering habits. Who's that? Oh, that's me. Oh. Hey. Laoya. Why? That's Laoya when she was a famous sci-fi movie uh, star. Like, <laughs> it looks like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then that's me. Why? When I, I wasn't as grey there, though, I like, had sort of darker hair. Um, so I'm a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist. Lowy is a classicist. And we're going to talk about moderation and stoic philosophy. And then we're going to, Lowy is going to talk about moderation in the Greek classics. And then I'm going to talk about breaking habits using behaviour therapy, like old school cool. behaviour therapy. It hasn't actually changed that much in about half a century. So let's talk about moderation and stoic philosophy, first of all. So it starts with the women, like in a way. So we there are a number of ancient sources that say the priestess, the Pythia at Delphi, um, who gave these oracular pronouncements, taught the central doctrines of philosophy to Pythagoras, who's a pre-Socratic philosopher, and he was uh, the first person really to kind of approach philosophy as a form of self-improvement, like a kind of therapy, and put a lot of emphasis on the idea of moderation because the god Apollo is associated with self-control and moderation. And so philosophy was kind of inspired by the teachings that came from the temple at Delphi, not far from here, uh, just outside Athens. And in particular, there were two famous inscriptions on a pillar at the entrance to the temple. And one was Ganothai Seauton, which means know thyself. And the other one was Maiden Agan, which means nothing too much, or as we say, all things in moderation today. And there's another well-known Greek saying, which is moderation is best, or metron ariston. So these kind of sayings uh, came from the temples. They were kind of like wisdom sayings, like maxims or precepts. And the philosopher Plutarch says they're kind of like little seeds of wisdom, like a Zen koan or something. And he says, although they're very short, and sometimes in Greek they were just two words, there were huge books written discussing them, most of which are lost now. But they kind of were like seeds that came from the priestesses that spawned loads of philosophy. And Pythagoras and Socrates went on to develop these ideas so maiden agan means nothing in excess, nothing too much, as we say all things in moderation. And Socrates talked a lot about know thyself, and also he talked a bit about this idea of nothing in excess. Socrates is very into moderation. So he says uh, in the Socratic dialogues of a guy called Xenophon, like a famous Athenian general, who was one of Socrates' students, we're told that Socrates said, of old, the saying, nothing in excess from the Delphic priestess, appeared to be, and really was, well said. For he whose happiness rests within himself has his life ordered for the best, said Socrates. He is temperate and courageous and wise. And when his riches come and go, when his children are given and taken away, he'll remember the proverb, neither rejoicing over much nor grieving over much, for he relies upon himself. So Socrates associates this with self-control, not 
getting too carried away and excited and rejoicing about things too much and also not freaking out, getting upset and grieving excessively about uh, things that, bad things that happen. Now, my thing is stoicism. So I'm very interested in the, the story of how stoic philosophy, which is kind of very popular at the moment, originated. And so there was a Phoenician merchant, a guy who came from Cyprus called Zeno of Citium, who was shipwrecked near Athens. And so he lost his entire fortune at sea. He was a wealthy merchant and he was sitting kind of dejected at a bookshop in Athens. And he read someone, uh, he heard someone reading book two of Xenophon's Memorabilia Socrates. So Xenophon's dialogues about Socrates. And Zeno had lost everything. He's sitting there and he hears this speech that's contained in that book. And this speech is a, a form of protractic which is a speech that's intended to persuade other people to follow wisdom and virtue. It's also called an exhortation to philosophy. An exhortation to philosophy as a way of life. It'd be like a motivational speech today. It's also designed to get people to kind of convert to philosophy as a way of life. So Zeno was listening to somebody else reading Xenophon's record of Socrates' version of an original speech by a guy called Prodicus of Chios, uh, an ancient sophist. So it's like a third or fourth hand version of what used to be a really famous influential speech. It's well known in the ancient world. And we don't know what they called it, but today we call it the choice of Hercules. And during the Renaissance, there were many paintings inspired by it. There were pieces of classical music inspired by it, but not so many people are familiar with it today. I mean, Socrates is telling this story about the choice of Hercules, which is about moderation and self-control. He begins with a quote from Hesiod, uh, this famous ancient Greek poet. And it's quite a famous quote. It says, evil, Scott, can be easily found in Wales and elsewhere, and freely smooth is the road and very near she dwells. But sweat, like with the turtles, the gods have set upon the way to goodness. Long and steep is the path to it, and rough at first. But if you reach the summit, thereafter it is easy, hard though it was. And so he's saying, well, like, you know, there's, a, there's two paths in front of you in life, Hesiod was saying. There's this one that seems like it's easy, but it's actually going to lead to problems for you. And then there's one that seems like hard work. Like, but once you've made it to the end, like, you'll look back and you'll feel much better for it. So don't always take the easy path in it's, life. It's like that. It's like the famous poem about the Robert Frost poem, "The Road, the less, road traveled. less Traveled." Take the road less traveled. Yeah. Take the road less traveled, Scott. So Hercules in this story symbolizes human perfection. He's a demigod. He's the son of Zeus, and he symbolizes, surprisingly perhaps, wisdom and virtue for the Stoics. And he's a young man. He's probably about fifteen years old. Like he's about to embark on adult life in ancient Greek society. And he finds himself lost in the woods and he's facing a fork with two roads in front of them, one to the left and one to the right. This is like a recurring idea in Greek philosophy and literature. And then two goddesses come forward and speak to him. And one of them is Arete, the goddess of virtue. And she speaks to him and she tells him that nothing truly good and admirable is granted to men without some effort on their part, which is the bold claim that Arete, the goddess of virtue, makes to him. But there's another goddess who pushes in front of her 
And she says that her name is Eudaimonia, or happiness and fulfillment. But guess what, Scott? She's lying. She always lies. Always. She always lies, this one, right? And so this is one of, this is a painting depicting it. I guess uh, Arity uh, is one with a red cloak. Um, and then the other one who claims to be Eudaimonia, like, is the one rather scantily dressed. Like, actually, and Hercules, young Hercules is middle. We know it's Hercules because he's got his club. So almost always, if you see a statue of a, an ancient Greek mm -hmm. carrying a club, it's like, in particular also if he has the lion skin, yeah. those are the typical mm -hmm. characteristics of the god Hercules. So it's a nice painting, that. It's a nice painting. I did that myself. I rattled that off this afternoon myself. There are, there are lots of paintings of this. So today, I'm going to read a little bit more actually today than I usually do, because this is an amazing speech, right? And so Arate really goes off on one about this other woman who, in actual fact, is called Kakia, who she's the goddess of vice or badness or wretchedness. Um, so she's the sort of woman that your mother warned you against or something like that, I guess. But Arate certainly doesn't approve of her. And this is what she says about it. She really lays into her. She says, you don't even await the desire for what is pleasant, but you stuff yourself with everything before you want it. You eat before you are hungry and you drink before you are thirsty. In order to make eating pleasurable once more, you're forced to constantly invent novel ways of preparing your food that will stimulate your appetite to make drinking enjoyable, even when you're not thirsty, you provide yourself with expensive wines and rush around searching for ice in summer. To make going to sleep pleasant, you're forced to provide yourself with the softest beds and blankets that money can buy, for it's not work that makes you want to retire to your bed, but boredom. You force the gratification of your sexual impulses before they're even aroused employing all sorts of devices, allegedly. You're denied the opportunity to hear that sweetest of all sounds, praise of yourself from others. And you're denied the sweetest of all sights, for you will never contemplate any act of your own that is admirable. So this is what Arity, like wow. casting shade on uh, the goddess of vice or Kakia there, but the main thing that she criticizes her for is this lack of moderation mm. or lack mm. of self-control. Mm -hmm. and, and for eating and drinking before she's even hungry or thirsty, sleeping mm. when she's not tired, and just kind of getting in a habit of overindulging. Mm -hmm. And this is this central to the speech that converted Xenocitium, the founder of uh, Stoicism, when he heard this, he mm. jumped up and he said, I'm going to go off and found Stoicism. Mm. Like... So Socrates, um, following on from telling this speech, reciting this speech from his friend Prodicus, uh, he says lots of other cool things about eating and sleeping and exercise and uh, drinking wine. And so one of the cool things he says, he talks a lot about opson, um, which is this ancient Greek word for relish. And so in ancient Greek cuisine, the meal would kind of have two components. They would eat a staple which would be like bread or beans or something that was widely available and cheap and easy to prepare. And then if you were lucky, you'd have a little bit of relish with it. So some expensive cheese 
or some fish or something that had a stronger flavor and was maybe a little bit more expensive, like a, a sauce uh, you'd have in smaller quantities to give the, the fruit flavor and to stimulate your appetite. And in ancient Greek society, they had this word, opsophagos, which means somebody that just eats the sauce, mm, someone mm -hmm. that just eats the relish. So this stuff that's meant to stimulate your appetite, like, and it would be like someone who just rips out the middle of sandwiches, Scott, or they get like, you know, jammy dodgers and they just eat the jam, like, or something like that. You would never do that, would you? Like, I'm thinking about that famous scene in uh, in You've Got Mail when uh -huh. like <clears throat> Meg Ryan and um, and Tom Hanks are like at the buffet and uh -huh. he's like this evil you know kind of money making book shop owner uh -huh. and he scrapes the caviar garnish off the like planter and just uh -huh. eats it all himself. She's like, that's the garnish. You can't <laughs> eat the garnish. So basically, he's an opsophagos in that scene. Right? He's okay. a massive opsophagos. Watch You've Got Mail for right. an example of an opsophagos. An example of it. And I, but I think Socrates would say, we're all relish eaters today. Like, we all kind of, like, we're surrounded. This is the, the restaurant industry, the food industry. Like, it's all about overstimulating us. Like, and Socrates, one of his big things was he says, if you overeat or overdrink, beware of things that stimulate your appetite because you'll end up eating when you're not hungry and drinking when you're not thirsty. And that will potentially lead to overeating. But over time, we engineer food to stimulate. And so we should uh, eat and uh, only when we're hungry and drink when we're thirsty, he says. Um, stick to plainer, simpler, healthier foods. Um, and for example, like if you drink one glass of water, that might be enough to satisfy your thirst. But if you're drinking beer or wine, you might drink, I don't know how many pints of beer would you drink, Scott? That's a personal question. That's a personal, is it too personal? Why in one, one go? Yeah. Like someone might drink 10 pints of beer, but you wouldn't yeah. drink 10 pints of water, would you? God, no. No, exactly. <laughs> That's, That's disgusting. That's disgusting. <laughs> That's exactly the point that Socrates is making. Right, so there's something about the beer that makes you want to drink more and more and more of it, like in a kind of artificial way, artificially stimulates your appetite. And the same might be if you eat a meal, you have your big roast dinner on a Sunday and you're really full up, right? You think, oh, I can't eat anymore. But then somebody brings out a really nice dessert and you think, oh, maybe I'll just have a little bit of that. <laughs> hey, and Socrates would say, but you're not hungry. Like you're full up. <laughs> and somebody has tricked you with this cunning witchcraft of making a tantalizing and dessert. Salt and fat. Yeah. <laughs> to eat when you're not even hungry, you're already full up, right? And Socrates also famously said that hunger is the best of all relishes. So he said you, by exercising moderation, he thought you actually enjoy your food more. Like, because hunger is the thing that would add most to your enjoyment of food rather than putting expensive sauces on it and things like that. And Socrates was running up and down one day in the Agora and somebody said to him, you know, like, buddy, what are you doing? Like, because he did a lot of strange things. You saw a lot of strange things in ancient Greece. And someone said, why are you running up and down like that, Socrates? And Socrates said, I'm preparing the sauce for my dinner. And what he meant was he's working up a healthy appetite. I'm working up a hunger, nice. Right. So some other things that Socrates says about self-control, and one of the other dialogues of Xenophon, he says, look, all men value liberty and despise slavery, says Socrates. This is a cliche in Athenian society. Freedom, like, 
like in Braveheart, like everyone loves to be free, nobody wants to be a slave. And his, the person he's speaking to sort of nods along and agrees with, with him about this like they usually do. And then Socrates usually throws a curveball at people, so he gets them agreeing, which seems like a simple enough question. So that, but then he says, so why do more people not value self-control? And his friend says, well, what do you mean? And Socrates says, well, can any man be free if he's governed by bodily pleasures and he can't do what would be best as a result of being governed by those desires for pleasure? Someone is no better than a slave, he says, if violent passions like desires and emotions prevent him from doing what he knows would be best. So he says, you guys all go on and on about freedom, but none of you are actually free because you're all enslaved by your own appetites and desires. Like, so you live in a free society, but you're not free men because you're mm. slaves to yourselves. And if you really valued freedom, you would conquer yourselves and become master of yourselves. And you would be able to exercise self-control and moderation. Otherwise, you've sacrificed your freedom. And another thing he says, he says loads of really cool, interesting things, right? And I, I think I'd say about Socrates is I don't, I wouldn't expect it. And even in the ancient world, everyone didn't agree with everything he said, right? So often he asks questions and he says things in a tricky roundabout way. And you go away thinking, I'm not really sure I'm convinced by that argument. I don't know if I believe what Socrates said, but it kind of bugs you and you keep thinking about it. You think, but still it was kind of interesting idea. Like it sticks in your mind a little bit. He says lots of interesting ideas, lots of paradoxes. So he has this famous paradox about pleasure, which I kind of touched on a little bit earlier. He says to one of his friends, have you ever noticed that although people say that self-indulgence leads to pleasure, like stuffing your face and things like that, it's rather self-control above all things that does so, paradoxically. So he says that, you know, being able to exercise moderation and self-control prevents you from spoiling your appetite. And so you'll get more enjoyment, more pleasure from the things that you're eating and drinking and from sleep and sex and things like that. Like if you overindulge in these things after a while, they, you cease to enjoy them. Like you spoil your enjoyment of them. Like and Socrates was saying this early on. And then he also says, he adds a little bit to it. He says, self-control is necessary for maintaining your physical fitness through exercise. And self-control is necessary for managing your household efficiently. And self-control is necessary for making yourself of benefit and use to your friends and to the community, the state in which you live. So therefore, some of the most rewarding and praiseworthy skills in life require self-discipline and a source of pleasure that are inaccessible to the lazy and self-indulgent. So the lazy and self-indulgent will never know the pleasures that come from running a well-ordered and successful household or a business, from being a benefit to society and other people, like, and from getting into sports and doing exercise and stuff like that, because they lack the self-control to even begin doing any of those things. So they've cut off whole areas of life that would potentially be pleasurable to them, he says. So he's really going for it, like, and arguing that self-control leads to pleasure. So now I don't normally read stuff, but I'm going to read you. He gives this other speech a bit, and it's similar to, it's like a, um, a reprisal of the speech from Prodicus, but it's shorter. And uh, so I'm going to tell you what he says, because it's pretty deep, uh, and it's typical Socrates. So he's talking to some of his friends about self-control and moderation and self-mastery. And he says, gentlemen, that's you, Scott. 
Suppose a war had broken out and we wanted to elect a leader under whom we stood the best chance of saving ourselves and defeating our enemies like Boris Johnson, right? Yes. Should we pick a man who has neither the ability to resist such things as food, wine and sex, nor tolerance for hard work and fatigue? And his friends are like, oh, guess not. He says, how would we expect such a person to either save us or subdue our enemies? Who would want to put somebody that can't even control himself in charge of the country? He's saying, especially during a crisis. We don't apply that standard to our political leaders anymore. But Socrates thought it was crazy. Like somebody who can't control themselves, why would you want them controlling the country? He says, suppose likewise that you were nearing the end of your lives. Would you entrust such a man, someone who lacks any self-control, with the education of your sons, the guardianship of your unmarried daughters, or entrust your estate to his stewardship? Would you have confidence in someone lacking any self-discipline to do these jobs? Would you entrust livestock or the management of other men or the supervision of their labor to an employee with this type of character? No. Surely then, if you would not even put up with an employee of this kind, far less should you endure the same defects to take root in your own character. You wouldn't hire this guy, so why would you want to be this guy? A weak-willed man does not merely benefit himself while harming others. No, he both harms others and harms himself, much more because to ruin not only one's own home, but also one's body and soul is the greatest injury of all, says Socrates. And who would appreciate the company of such a man at a dinner party if he cared more for the food and wine than he did for his friends. So he says greedy people like they're more interested in the food. Like who would want to even hang around somebody like that? Surely every man ought to regard self-control as the foundation of moral goodness and to cultivate it before all else. That's a bold claim, Socrates. Self-control is the basis of all morality. Without self-discipline, who can either learn anything good or practice it to any degree worth mentioning. So now he's saying you need self-control for education. Is that true, Lawyer? Sure do. To learn a language and stuff like that. Who can escape degradation of his body and soul if he's a slave to his appetites? A man who's a slave to such pleasures ought to pray to the gods that he finds a good master, for that may be the only way in which he can be saved, because he's not going to be able to be a master to himself, Socrates is saying. And that's his little tirade, if you like. You said your piece now, Socrates. That's his little spiel about how important self-control and moderation really is. And so with that in mind, I'll, I'll hand over to Lalia, who's going to talk a little bit about self-control and moderation in Greek classics. Mm, yes. Yeah. So I'm going to talk uh, about moderation in a slightly different, from a slightly different angle. Um, and I'm just going to start with well, possibly, I don't know, the people who are watching this may be way too young to know who the person on the right is. Do you know who the person on the right is, Scott? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, kind of, you don't know it. Okay, so uh, the one with the crazy arms. So that's 
that's Kate Bush, the singer. Ah, oh, I know Kate um, Bush. I love her songs. So this is probably from like a concert circa like 1989 or something like that. Um, and on the left, can can we guess who that kind of person might be? Like, a, I don't know. It's, she's not a massively a queen. queen. Kind of a queen, yeah. Well, she is. She is. She is royal. So this is a lovely actress um, called Constance Swain playing um, Antigone, who is a famous Greek heroine from Greek tragedy. Um, and this was from a performance of the play from 2019 when plays were still happening from the American Shakespeare Center. Um, so yeah, girl on the left is Antigone. So famous Greek heroine, woman on the right is Kate Bush. And I will hopefully show you that there is a connection between these two lovely ladies. And I'm just gonna get you to listen to a little song first. It's always nice to have a little break and like listen to something, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, hundred percent. How is it okay? Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pause it there because we don't need to hear the whole song, but we can always go back to it at the end if we really want to have a little dance around to Kate, to uh, Kate Bush. Um, and I'm gonna try and make this smaller if I can. Um, Maybe uh, the escape key. Oh, escape. Okay, thank you. So um, you might not have caught the lyrics to that like very catchy little tune, um, which is from 1993. I was, ooh, how old was I? Oh, I was 10 in 1993. So I don't think I was quite dancing to this then, but um, I should have been. I really should have been. Um, oh, sorry. Didn't mean to do that. Just wanted to skip it on. Um, okay, so uh, the, the lyrics of Kate's song go, see those trees bend in the wind. I feel they've got a lot more sense than me you see, I try to resist. Um, and uh, it kind of, she goes on to um, describe herself in her like ideal form as the reason why the song is called Rubber Band Girl is because she imagines herself as a little rubber band, which can like constantly like, like bend and be flexible and like always bounce back to uh, success and life. Um, so it's a song about flexibility. Um, it's a song about bouncing back. Um, and it's also about the danger of like resisting too hard against change. Um, so um, she's not too happy with uh, trying to resist. She wants to be like a little catapulting rubber band. Um, and um, so Antigone, who was our girl on the left, um, this is a play uh, written by the Athenian playwright Sophocles in 441 BC. And it's really famous because it's part of the Oedipus trilogy. So Oedipus was a guy that um, accidentally married his mother, killed his father, and um, a whole bunch of ills 
terrible things beset his his house, um, the royal family, um, the city of Thebes, which is where he was from. Um, and uh, the third play in the trilogy is called Antigone because it's about his daughter, um, Antigone, and it's set after Oedipus's death. Um, she's basically um, living in Thebes, but um, eat the king is dead and there's uh, a civil war on and she's got two brothers and um, one of them is like fighting for the city and her uncle who's taken over and the other one is fighting against the city um, and trying to usurp his uncle from power. Um, now, unfortunately the two brothers kill each other in single combat um, and her uncle uh, says, um, you're not allowed to bury the one who was fighting against me. But Antigone is like, um, well, actually, like, he's my brother, so I'm kind of going to bury him anyway, you know, like, it's really important to me. Um, but her uncle brings out this law in the city, and he says that anybody who, is, who buries the body of this guy, Polynices, um, will, be, will be killed. They'll be, they'll be put to death, capital punishment. Um, but Antigone is like, I don't care. Your law, your law is a stupid law. Yeah, like I don't care that it's the law, it's idiotic and it goes against my conscience. So she's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bury my brother anyway. Um, and things don't work out too well for her. So she's actually engaged to um, Creon is his name, the tyrant of the city. She's actually engaged to his son, which is like super awkward. Like, can you imagine like, can you imagine like, like, sitting around the Sunday lunch table and it's like, mm, yeah, you kind of like buried the guy that like the law said you shouldn't. Anyway, <laughs> I can't imagine how awkward that, I mean, let's face it, it was an awkward family already. Cause like her, her dad was her brother and her mother was like her aunt. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so it was, it was already like really weird but then it got even more weird. <laughs> so luckily her, her fiance kind of has a word for her um, on her behalf with his with his father and he basically says look you can't just like you know you're talking about your 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 niece here you can't just like uh, enforce this this stupid law on her you know like she's acting according to her conscience I know it's the law but like it's okay you can be you can be flexible about the law I know it's the law but like think of the wider ramifications um, and he says this you know he gives a long speech but um Part of the, the really nice little bit of it is he says, um, see how the trees that give way to the winter storms save their branches while the stiff and rigid trees perish root and all. So hopefully you can see why I kind of showed you the Kate Bush song to begin with, because there's like a, there's a lovely correlation between um, the two. I'll just come back to that. Um, so on the one hand, um, Kate says, um, the trees that bend have got a lot of sense. Um, if you try to resist, it's not a very good idea for you. And uh, the son says to his crazy lawmaking father, um, look, give way, don't enforce these laws too rigidly. Um, he's basically warning his father that like bad things will happen to him if he enforces these laws too strongly, which indeed it does as the play unfolds. Um, for, for the ruler, things do not go too well. Um, I'm just going to skip back to the other um, slide, actually, because this, this play, Antigone, has had, indeed, all of the, all of the plays of the Oedipus um, myth <coughs> have been adapted 
throughout history. And, um, you know, they're an incredibly kind of fruitful um, source for storytelling, basically, because it's such an amazingly kind of messed up family. And um, particularly Antigone, the play is, is, is really interesting politically because, and, and philosophically, because it looks at um, this clash between the laws of the state and individual conscience here. And it's, and it's played out like really interestingly in, in the ancient play, but it's also been, and I just gonna do a little shout out. I mean, I, there's, there's no, um, no one's paying me to say this, but this novel came out three years ago, four years ago. Um, and it's a retelling and updating of the Antigone myth set in present day um, UK and America. Um, and it's really, really, really good. And it kind of highlights all the same issues are, that are in the play, but in, in an amazing, um, in an amazing dramatic novel. So um, if anybody's looking for like a really good book to read, which is inspired by the classics, but is super entertaining and accessible, I could definitely recommend this, this novel. Um, and I'm sure you can get it as an audiobook as well. It's, it's really, really, really good. Um, I can, I, I can send you the, um, the name later, Scott. Yes. Um, so yeah, so we've got, um, Kate Bush on the one hand, uh, Antigone on the other. So the basic argument here is like, be flexible. Being flexible is good um, and not doing anything too um, rigidly. Um, so yeah, so uh, Antigone's fiance um, asked the king, he says, even when a man is wise, so he's flattering his father a little bit. He says, it brings him no shame to learn many things, but especially not to be too rigid. So he says, however old you are, however wise you are, however powerful you are, you know what you can learn. You can learn the art of not, um, not acting to excess. Um, so yeah, um, the, the word actually that he uses in, uh, when he says not, don't be too rigid, he actually uses this phrase, sorry for like skipping back a little bit, he actually uses the phrase that, that Donald quoted earlier, which is med and agan. So agan means too much or excessively. Um, and so the son is saying to the father, do not do, um, do not act in excess of, um, of, of your powers. Um, and he uses this word agan. Um, in fact, he uses the whole phrase med and agan, which is found on the temple of Apollo at Delphi. Um, which means don't do anything in excess. Um, the other, as Donald said, the other motto, which is on the Temple of Apollo is gnothi seauton, which means know thyself. But it's not just about self-knowledge um, and wisdom. Um, it's also about knowing your limits. So knowing your mortal limits, um, but also knowing your, your, your daily limits. Um, so knowing what you're capable of. Um, knowing how far you should push yourself, um, i.e. Um, moderation. Um, so having an awareness of yourself and, and knowing uh, how to act moderately. Um, but it's, it's a really, um, I think that the, the quote from the play is, is, is something that we can all bear in mind when we look at, um, you know, lawmakers, rulers, the present day. Um, you know, I think we can all think of an example where people in power have acted as we might feel like in excess of, of, of what is the right way to act. And, and it may be that they even act in a way that we think 
I think often we might think I would never have done that. Like if that was me, I wouldn't have done it. Um, you know, we might think in the way that people, um, uh, you know, even for example, um, you know, a judgment in a criminal court, but also with, um, you know, the way that, you know, I, I have no particular view either way, but you might even think about the way that certain governments like react to COVID, you know, maybe they're being too harsh, maybe they're being too strict or whatever. So um, it's always worth, you know, these, these issues have been like debated for thousands of years and not just by philosophers, um, but in, in drama as well on the stage. As, as entertainment. Um, people, um, you'll see it frequently when the world goes back to normal, people always know when a bouncer is abusing his power, when they're overly aggressive with people and it's like, you're abusing your power, mate. You don't need to do it. So you can see exactly. it every weekend if you want to. Everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody can think of an example of where someone who's already in power basically just like, just pushes it a little bit too much. Um, so I think... Uh, there we go. Oh, actually, this is the last thing I wanted to say was um, the really nice message from, I think, the Kate Bush song is, um, so in another line, she says, if I could only learn to give like a rubber band, um, I would be back on my feet. And um, the son says to his father, the ruler, even when a man is wise, it brings him no shame to learn many things, but especially not to be too rigid. So the last little bit that I just guess I wanted to leave you with was this idea of like, wisdom and learning um, and this is very much bound up with the idea of moderation is actually like that sense and knowing yourself is connected with moderation so you know your limits then you know how to behave um, and you know and we, we can all think of examples as well from life where um, we're aware of our limits we act in accordance with it and you know what this ties in with the point that you made earlier about not getting too upset about things that go wrong or too happy about things which are brilliant. You know, that's also part of resilience, which is not kind of allowing yourself to be kind of swayed by either a success or a failure. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that this is very much to do with resilience as well. Yeah, that's great. There's loads of good points there. Why do you um, think it is like we've known this for years, right? We've known for years the answers. Why are we always tricking ourselves as if it's got to be something like complex? I think it's, um, I think it's not, I think people are kind of, well, you know what? Because exercising moderation and self-knowledge is difficult. It's actually really hard. It's actually yeah. really yeah. hard. So it's the hardest thing to like know yourself and to think either I should be doing X or I'm not capable of that, you know? Um, yeah. So I think we kind of, we self-deceive a lot of the time because it's easier to kind of just like delude ourselves than do the path, which is really difficult. Like often, often moderation is the hardest, well, as, as you know, Socrates pointed out, moderation is like the hardest, the hardest thing. And knowing yourself is, is super hard as well. Um, yeah. Really hard. I think um, with moderation and stuff like that, why is like, because it's not, there's a, there's a member who says like moderation is sexy and it got caught, it caught on after the last Christmas challenge, but trying to make moderation sexy. So give it a, a, an appeal, <laughs> but um, it's, it's just not appealing because obviously the, this we've got, we've been conditioned to say stuff like no pain, no gain, or like we've got so many of these sayings that mean we have to suffer or we have to do something crazy. Like we've been conditioned in this way. 
and I don't know when it started. Like, did the Greeks and the Romans, were they promoting, well, they were promoting a life of, who were the philosophers who were saying we should live for pleasure? Were they the... Were they, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so they're troublemakers. Like, I mean, they're, they're causing problems. That's a blame for us. I mean, the, the other thing about the whole no pain, no gain, like mm -hmm. little phrase is that um, maybe it's just that we've kind of got it into our heads that like pain is bad, but like a little bit of like discomfort to kind of get to the thing that you want to get to, like anything that's worthwhile is worth sweating over a little bit. And maybe we're just so used to like having stuff come easy if we have to make a tiny bit of effort, it feels like pain, but mm. it's not really pain. It's also yeah. about building good. I mean, you'll talk about this next, but like in terms of breaking bad habits, but like building good yeah. habits and you get into the habit of like, I've just started doing yoga, right? For the last 10 days. And it was so hard on the first day. And now I like jump out of bed in the morning and I want to do my yoga because I've got into the habit, right? So. Yeah, live like Lalia, let's start it up. Let's get it going. There's a, there's a good way, um, Robin Sharma, the 5am club, I mean, it's just the catchy title, but he explains habits in that quite well. He says the first phase is like when you move into an apartment that needs to get done out, you've got to destroy. Then it's the like restructuring, which is, you can kind of see it coming together. And then at the end, it all comes together. So you think when you start a new habit, you've got to basically go through a really destructive phase where it's really mm -hmm. hard. Uh, it's not easy. But did the, did the Romans and stuff know about habits? Did they think, like, were they just calling it the unconscious or were they calling it the universe? Like, what were they, what were they calling no, it? No, they talked about have, um, Aristotle actually said that our habits become second nature, famously. Mm. We're sort of familiar with that phrase now, but actually it's quite a profound thing. Yeah. It says uh, when, something, when you do something enough times, it becomes a habit, and then it, it, become, it transforms your character. Like it becomes who you are. It becomes mm -hmm. like a new layer on your your nature, your what's personality. His, what's his famous and, and the, quote? What's that famous quote? He's got about um uh of you, Scott. It's not it's not it's me, it's of me. <laughs> yeah, he says something about me. Um you know what it is, it's like that famous sports one. Um Aristotle, yeah. Oh, what we repeatedly do excellence then is not an act but a habit i'm not sure if he actually said that though he was very interested in habits and so were the like the stoics mm. were as well um socrates like a bit but i'm going to talk to you now about what modern psychology the, um, behavior therapy has to before say. you start your thing right. i'll just give you some etymology yes. so the word habit is from the latin verb habito which means i live so yeah. actually mm -hmm. that's a really nice take home for habits. It's like, well, the, et the very etymology of the word is something that we should live, mm -hmm. yeah? And we get obviously the word habitat as a place where you live. So I think we need to think about habits as being not something that you pick up like a, a crash diet for like, you know, 30 days, but it should be something which is, becomes part of your life. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's weird how words have lost their true meaning. I was looking at the dictionary from a hundred years ago versus now, and the definitions are ter like way less like explanatory, like they're just completely simplified so much that the words have less meaning. Basically, strange. I love that, Lalia. I love it. Post that on Twitter, whatever you do. Get on Twitter, Facebook, whatever it is. <laughs> big fan. Big fan. Oh, I used to like about etymology. Right. Into the good stuff. So we're going to talk. We're going to talk about HRT. Nice. Right. 
not hormone replacement therapy or whatever, it's habit reversal therapy. So there's this weird thing that geeky people like me that are into uh, behavior therapy and stuff will say, and I quite like saying this, it's kind of an opinionated thing. They'll say behavior therapists nailed lots of common problems in the 1970s, right? So weirdly, although we struggle with a lot of problems, some of the most robust techniques that we have in psychotherapy are some of the ones that were discovered relatively early on in the early days of behavioral psychology before we even did what we now call cognitive behavioral therapy. And one of the most robust techniques happens to be for breaking habits. And there are loads of books and habits and they've got lots of useful information in them. Like, but nevertheless, like this technique that was developed in the 1970s by two psychologists called Ajran and Nunn, very simple. Like it only requires one training session it's mainly a self-help technique. I had a 90% success rate like, in helping people to break common habits. Like, they just applied very basic behavioral psychology principles to it. And then you can see there's a book that they wrote, which nobody reads apart from me. Like, because you'd have to buy a kind of grubby old sort of like used version of it, I think, to, to get it now, probably. There's habit control in a day. But the randomized control trials that we have show that this is a very robust technique. Co-author of toilet training in less than a day. Toilet was that, is that how you got into it? That was how I found out about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the first thing, habit of like breaking habits uh, requires motivation and self-discipline, like we've been talking about. And there are a number of ways that you can build motivation, as you and none talk about this. So I'm going to talk about their method, right? And they would say, you have to start by building motivation. Th this technique, habit reversal therapy, is really solid, but you have to have the motivation in the first place to make it actually work. And so you can do, but so behavioral psychologists think, well, motivation isn't this like weird abstract thing. It, you create motivation by changing your behavior and changing your environment. You manufacture motivation. And so you build motivation by rewarding yourself, for example. So you might say to yourself, okay, like if I follow this routine and I stick with it for two weeks, then I'll, you know, myself i'll take myself on a holiday or something at the end or I'll give myself some kind of reward i'll talk a little bit more about uh rewards later or they say you set up a social contract so i'd say lalia i'm gonna break my nose picking habit like <laughs> once and for all like i'm gonna do it over the next couple of weeks and if i don't do it i want you to punch me really hard in the face right so like because i really mean it lalia like i'm gonna give it i'm gonna write it and sign it and give you a contract so if you bring other people and, and you make it public, you kind of announce it, then you kind of feel the peer pressure. Like, and sometimes sometimes that can be useful. It varies a little bit, but in some cases you can use kind of peer pressure, you can use it in agreement, like to kind of remind yourself and to bind yourself and motivate yourself into following through with a strategy that work. And then another technique that's a bit cognitive is, I'll talk more about this in a moment, but a very simple thing you can do they call it an annoyance review, an annoyance review. So you would say, say you want to break a habit, like picking your nose, right? Or whatever, like, or, or eating sushi, <laughs> eating too much sushi, like snacking on candy or something. Mm -hmm. So you'd make a list of all the things that really piss you off about this habit. And you'd read that list every day and you'd add stuff to it. So you've got a really crystal clear list of all the things that piss you off most about this habit, all your reasons, all your motivation for wanting to break it. So they're clear, you remember them, and maybe you're, you're is, even adding stuff to it. That is awesome. 
That is awesome. Yeah, it's very so powerful. it's it's almost like a demotivational technique. Like it demotivates, like demotivates you from the chocolate, and then you have your motivation yeah. to like. Like, if you cool. say to people like, "Why do you want to stop smoking?" They'll go, "Oh, I guess this and that." And like, but really, you can come up with a really specific, detailed list of like a whole bunch of reasons. And people usually only think about one dimension. So like, oh, I'm snacking on candy. Why do I want to stop doing? It? I don't know. Like to lose weight or whatever. Well, maybe it's bad for your teeth. Maybe it's a waste of money. You know, maybe if you broke this habit, you'd have more self-confidence, more self-esteem, more self-control in general. Mm-hmm. Might even have an effect on your relationships. Might be distracting you from work that you're doing when you go and get snacks and stuff like that. You could probably come out with a huge list of reasons why you would want to break this habit. So I know as a therapist, I'll ask the clients, why do you want to change this? They'll usually go, I don't know, because my wife told me to. Or, <laughs> you know, they'll be, they'll be kind of like vague. Right. But the people that go, I can give you a list of reasons why I want to stop smoking. And they're really clear about it, much more likely to succeed. So motivation isn't some like woolly thing. It comes from beliefs, from behaviors, from ways that you set up your, you can manufacture motivation. Like there are ingredients to motivation. I like, I'm a big fan of that. I really like that. Do you know, um, yeah, go on. I think Atomic Habits talks about like doing the two minute rule where doing some of the two minutes that will manufacture basically the motivation after two minutes to keep going. Yeah, yeah, often a good way to start is just do something for a little while. Like Darren Brown and Happy, he talks about one of his friends that doesn't like flossing his teeth. And so the guy says to himself, Well, I'll just floss one tooth, right? If I, <laughs> I'll do that. That's easy, right? Who can't? It's easy, just floss one tooth. And then he, does, he thinks, Well, I may as well do the rest now. I've started. Exactly. Build a habit by tricking yourself. When I was a young guy and I did martial arts, we did, the guy that trained us in Taekwondo was brutal. So like he'd have us go up and down the hall, like doing press ups and kicks and stuff. And he'd always go, just do one more, just one more. Mm-hmm. Like, but one more would be like 20 more. Like, <laughs> like, you said that last time. Like, it, works with, it works with writing as well. Because sometimes I get up in the morning and I'm just like, oh, I've got to write a thousand words. And uh-huh. if I just th- yeah, sit totally. down and I think, oh, I'm just going to write two sentences yeah, about yeah. the funny thing that Donald said yesterday. Sure, and then sure. boom, suddenly I've written a thousand words. Yeah. Well, we're both writers and I do, I do that as well. Like, you know, I go, I think, oh, I've got... I can't write another whole chapter like you know i'm gonna have to sit down i think i'll just write one sentence but then you write a sentence it turns mm-hmm. into a couple of paragraphs like because you get kind of drawn yeah. into it yeah. so okay building on that annoyance review idea do you remember the choice of hercules from earlier so this is ancient philosophy but we also do something similar in modern cognitive behavioral therapy so motivation also comes from contact with perceived consequences of your action and people say, oh, I know what the consequences are, but they're usually really vague about them. They don't make them vivid and they don't think about them frequently. So it's about really coming into contact where like, even if it's in your mind's eye with the consequences of your actions. So the way you might do it is like in the choice of Hercules go, this path is the status quo where you carry on munching on your, like eating your cheesy watsits, like eating a, a jumbo sized bag of cheesy watsits every day or whatever your bad habit is. And then the other path is the path of arity. Like when you exercise self-control, like Socrates is banging on about, like you take cheesy watsits and you throw them in the bin or whatever, right? You tell everybody that, you know, punch me in the face if they ever see me eating another cheesy watsit, please, right? You've got 100% committed to stopping doing that. So you have these two paths in front of you. And then you visualize the consequences of them. So you visualize, Scott, if you were to eat a jumbo pack of cheesy watsits every day for the next, like, week, 
for the next month, for the next six months, the next year, five, where do you think you would be five years from now? If that was your daily... The big cheesy offset. Yeah. Yeah. But what happens, like, if you ripped it up and you broke that habit and you visualize where you would be six months, like five years from now, and I've done this hundreds of times, like many hundreds of times with clients in therapy. And the first thing I would say is that they go, you might think they'd say they'd lose weight or something, but it's bigger than that because it also means that they would develop more self-confidence, more self-esteem and become more adept at exercising self-control. So often when we're doing habit breaking, we say it's not about the cheesy watts at Scott. Like it's about your character. It's about arity. Like it's about the sort of person you are. Are you the kind of guy that can't stop himself from eating cheesy watsits? Are you the kind of guy that laughs in the face of cheesy watsits? Like and exercises mm. the virtue yeah. of self-discipline. And like so people it. say, well, I want to be that guy. Like, it's not just about maybe losing the weight. It's about who you become. Mm-hmm. Like, it's about being able to kind of have self-respect because, you, you know, you're, you're proud of yourself. And so to do that, you have to visualize the consequences. You have to visualize the consequences over the longer term because then the consequences will become more pronounced. And then it helps to have these two paths so that you can contrast them. So by contrasting the long-term consequences, you amplify like your motivation to go like nobody in their right mind is going to go down the cheesy what's it road now not when they've seen the long-term consequences and compared them side by side like this is a version of you that eats a jumbo jumbo bag of cheesy what's it's every day and this guy not only is not doing that but he's got more self-confidence and self-control in general and when you couldn't like confront those in your mind's eye and put them side by side it's much more motivating Mm -hmm. than if you're Mm -hmm. just kind of talking about it and being a bit vague right you need to make it vivid vivid powerful and extreme like concrete specific the long-term consequences of it not just for your health but for your relationships your work your daily routine your self-esteem your character and contrast these two things side by side that's why it's a fork in the road because the fork gets further and further and further apart the more you go down until it ends up being two completely different versions of yourself all because scott cheesy watches god uh, well donald there's a, a question you're coming in when i was skinny out i had less confidence because i cared more someone's saying you they don't have a why and stuff so like well how would you deal with the, the choice of hercules if you don't have a strong enough why is it can you manufacture a wire out of nowhere and go with it? Like, what are we doing? Manufacturing your motivation. You've just got to think through the broader consequences, like of making a specific change. Why would I do this? Like, you know, it's not just for like the weight loss or the fitness or whatever, but it's about your character in general. Like I was saying a moment ago, like if you give into one habit that you know that you don't want to give into, like it's a slippery slope because you become more weak-willed in general. And you'll notice the thing about people that are self-disciplined in one area of a life, often they're able to exercise self-discipline more generally. Mm-hmm. So if I'm self-disciplined in managing my diet, we're both fasting today, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're like, we'd, see, we're not even thinking about that. We're, we fast every Monday. Like, so we're both fasting today. But that makes me a better writer, right? Um, it makes me a better father to my daughter. Like you become a better role model, like, you know, you're able to exercise self-awareness and self-control in one little area of your life, 
then maybe I can be more self-aware and exercise more self-control when I'm writing or parenting. Like you develop cognitive and behavioral skills that generalize. This is why it's a bit more than the cheesy what's it. The why isn't just the cheesy what's it or whatever it is. Like it's bigger than that, much bigger. Like it's about developing skills that will make you generally more resilient and also a better role model to other people that you might care about if you've got kids or whatever. Um, so after building motivation, the next step is what we call spotting early warning signs, right? We'll talk a lot about this. It, to break a habit, it helps a lot to catch it early and then nip it in the bud. And many people will break a habit purely by doing this alone. Not always, right? But many people, just by noticing their habit at an earlier stage, they're noticing the desire for cheesy watsits, uh, the desire, the urge to have a cigarette at an earlier stage, for many people is enough for them to derail it and step back from it. But even if that's not the case, we're going to deploy like another technique on the back of it, like to break the habit. So sometimes self-awareness is powerful enough, like by itself to break a habit. So you first thing you do is you have to raise awareness. You've got to first of all, make an effort. You've got to be motivated to spot the very earliest warning signs of a habit. And then you have to ask yourself questions. So in therapy with a client, I would say, say the habit could be worrying or the habit could be smoking cigarettes. So I might say to them, like when you're beginning to feel an urge for cigarettes or cheesy what's it? So when you're just beginning to, to kind of worry excessively, what do you think is happening to your facial expression? What, what are you doing with your hands at that point? Like what happens to your eyes? Do, do you think your voice or your breathing change at all? If I was listening to you talk, would I hear any difference in your voice at that point? Would someone observing and listening to you very closely notice any other subtle changes? Like, and the reason is that if people become aware of things that they hadn't noticed before, that self-consciousness inherently tends to slow down and break the habit. It's what we call sometimes the de-automatization of a habit. So a good example would be you have good habits that you could break. Like, so you know how to tie your shoelaces and how to tie a tie maybe. But suppose you've got a wee boy and he's going to school and he says, dad, could you show me how to tie my shoelaces? Now you have to do it the other way around and suddenly it feels really awkward. And you think, geez, man, this is like, I usually just go do, 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 and it's done. I don't even think about it. Now I'm like, ah, I guess you put this through that bit and like, and try to tie someone else's tie, but you can like think about it. So because you're having to think about the steps, it feels awkward and clumsy. Um, and you kind of, you de-automatize, you break down a habit that way. And that would be annoying if you were giving a speech or performing at a concert, you wouldn't want to become clumsy and have to think of each step but it's useful if you want to break a bad habit. Uh, and so the way to break a bad habit is to really observe closely what you're doing right from the very earliest stages of it. One, so you might spot it earlier. And two, just because you, if you spot more of the associated behaviors, the things that are going on at the time, um, it tends to take away the automatic quality of the habit. And that can be enough, but often we'll add another step, which is a competing response. So that could be when you notice that you're beginning to feel an urge to eat your cheesy watsits, you do anything that's incompatible with a habit, right? So at this point, boom, you do something that makes it impossible to do the habit. 
Now, in Ashwin and none in generally in therapy, the most common technique is to clench your fists for some reason, right? Because most of the habits that people want to break are called face, uh, hand-to-face habits. Mm. Biting fingernails, snacking on food, drinking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, mm. picking sport. Like a great deal of the habits that people want to break are, face, are hand-to-face huh. habits, funnily enough. Interesting. Right? No one says that. Why does nobody say you're that simple, Donald? Why is nobody yeah. saying this? Just we need to be Edward Scissorhands then, so we can't use and, your hands. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands didn't <laughs> even do that. And like, you know, even chimpanzees find it comforting to put that, like, to suck their thumb and put their hand to their mouth, right? It's just there's something inherently comforting about putting your hands to your mouth. It's like an instinctive thing. But a lot of our bad habits, not all of them, but a lot of our bad habits like picking your nose, like, you know, like, kind of involved in stuff like that. And the fist clench makes it impossible to do that, right? Hmm. Um, and like there's research on this, what we call dismantling studies, where we kind of shred the technique and we're trying to figure out which bits of it work. And so what the dismantling research showed was that for this to work, you have to clench your fists for at least a minute. Hmm. Like, and that sounds like nothing, but if you do it for like 10 seconds, it gets kind of boring. And after 20 or 30 seconds, it's really boring. So a minute's like a long time to just sit there clenching your fists, right? And it's like you're sending a message to this primitive part of your brain that says, geez, I really don't want to have to do that again. Like, it's actually a form of what we um, call uh, aversive conditioning and behavioral psychology. Like, um, it's, uh, you're telling your brain, your brain is kind of thinking, that was so boring and tedious. I really don't want to do it again. So that will kind of damp down, Mm -hmm. like, its inclination to give you the urge for cigarettes or cheesy watsits or whatever again, right? And also the original guys didn't realize this, but subsequent research has found that even as often happens, if you slip and you smoke a cigarette and you go, oh shit, I forgot I'll smoke a cigarette before I even realized it, or the cheesy what's in my mouth already somehow, mm-hmm. it just jumped in my mouth, right? And uh, I didn't even notice it was done. I missed that one, right? So, but what we found is that you clench your fists mainly to stop you from doing the habit, but it also works if you clench your fists after no way. you've That's set the habit. Because it's still punitive, right? So you go, oh, I had a cheesy watch, it still have to do my fist clench thing. Oh. So again, you're still sending a message to your brain. If you even think about cheesy watches, and certainly if you put one in your mouth, you're going to have to do this boring thing like oh. where you sit for a whole minute just clenching your fists, right? It takes self-discipline to do that. This is why we start off with the motivation. But if you can do it, like it'll kick the ass of your bad habits, hmm. right? It's very powerful. They're 90% success rate in the original uh, outcome studies by getting people like to stick to this and do it. Like you won't want to do your habit like after a while or kind of like knock it on its head. But it also helps to combine this with self-instruction. So naturally when you're doing it, it's almost like self-hypnosis because you're quite concentrated. And then you might as well say things to yourself. And the way when people do this, it feels like, what we call assertiveness training, but really you're being assertive with yourself. And the types of things that people will usually say are either self-efficacy statements, as we call them, like, I can do this. I'm stronger than any habit. Like, I can definitely do this. So kind of like telling yourself you can do it or telling yourself how important it is, again, to motivate yourself. So you might go, I can do this. It's really important to me. Like, and then maybe thinking about you or not, like, I hate smoking cigarettes. Like, all the money it costs, affecting my health, the example I set to my kids, 
I can do this, I'm going to do it. Like kind of being quite confident and assertive in saying that. And I certainly think you're stronger than the habit. Like you can do that, focus on it for like a, about a minute or so. Like your habit's going to be scared, right? It's going to be like the whack-a-mole. Like the little mole comes up, you whack it. Like, but after a while your habit's going to go, do you know what? I'm not going to bother. I'm not even going to bother showing up anymore if he's going to do that thing. Like, so you diminish it. So that's habit reversal therapy. It's pretty simple. Well, yeah, I have a job for you. Oh, do I get to read it? Oh, I love D.H. Lawrence. I'm gonna do I get to read D.H. Lawrence? I ask you to read D.H. Lawrence. Excellent. Okay. I'm expecting big things now. Let's go. A very, a very great doctor taught me, Hermione said, addressing Ursula and Gerald vaguely. He told me, for instance, that to cure oneself of a bad habit, one should force oneself to do it. When one would not do it, make oneself do it, and then the habit would disappear. How do you mean, said Gerald? If you bite your nails, for example, then when you don't want to bite your nails, bite them, make yourself bite them, and you would find the habit was broken. Is that so, said Gerald? Yes, and in so many things, I have made myself well, I was a very queer and nervous girl, and by learning to use my will, simply by using my will, I made myself right. Well, 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 <laughs> I mean, that is a bold claim. That's a bold claim. <laughs> However, it's backed up by research. And this is one of the mysteries to me. I'm a bit of a nerd about the history of psychotherapy, weirdly, of all the things to be into. Um, and I can't figure out how D.H. Lawrence knew this. He says, like, because uh, this, this is a very unusual idea. And he attributes it to a famous doctor, but we don't know, like, I don't believe he made this up. Because um, around the same time, there was a famous psychologist called Knight Dunlap, who also has one of the coolest names. This dude's name is actually Knight, like a medieval knight, Knight Dunlap. In the 1920s in America, he was the president of the American Psychological Association. So he was a famous um, psychologist. And he invented a thing called negative practice, which involves paradoxically doing a habit over and over again in, in order to break it. So this is different from the method that I described a moment ago, the habit reversal treatment. So habit reversal involves doing something incompatible with a habit. It's also called counter conditioning to break a habit by doing something opposite, a competing response. Negative practice is the opposite. It just says do the habit like over and over. And, uh, Knight Dunlap says, we normally think if you repeat a habit, uh, a behavior lots of times that the habit gets stronger. But he said, you know what? He's a very astute psychologist. He said, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes habits get weaker with repetition. And the, he noticed the example he gives uh, is, this was well known at the time in America in secretarial colleges, because I'll quote Dunlap. He says, the non-professional typist and the learner, like a novice typer, frequently make persistent errors, such as the transposition of the word the, T-H-E, into H-T-E, like when they're trying to type quickly. And these errors are ordinarily eliminated with difficulty. It has been found, however, that even a small amount of practice in writing the word in the wrong way hmm. will eliminate the error. So he That's saw that in secretarial colleges, they'll say type H-T-E, a hundred times, right? 
And then when they practiced doing the bad habit, like it would actually weaken it rather than strengthen it. And Dunlap said this is contrary to what everybody assumes about how habits work. Hmm. And he didn't, he said he wasn't sure why this happened, but there are a number of experimental studies that show that it often works. So it's not 100% reliable. No, none of these techniques are, but often it does work. Um, more often than we would think. And so Dunlap said the main variable is the attitude. So if you're repeating a habit in order to break it or weaken it, then that will tend to happen. It's cognitively mediated, as we would say today. So like whether it strengthens the habit or weakens the habit will depend on what your intention is when you're doing the repetition, mm -hmm. weirdly. Mm -hmm. But other behavioral psychologists, a guy called Clark Hall, who was also president of the APA, like said there are other possible explanations of this. In fact, I, I won't bore you with it, but there are many reasons why repeating uh, a behavior over and over again can potentially break it, especially if you do it in a certain way. And so one of the things that helps is what's called mass repetition, where you do something very, very quickly over and over again in a short space of time. Um, and that might break the habit because uh, there's a, a believed to be a mechanism called reactive inhibition. Like, so it's part of your nervous system that if you do something very, very quickly over and over again, your, your brain inherently builds up a kind of reluctance to do it. Like, like you're going to get a bit annoyed with it. Hmm. Um, and also, if you repeat something over and over again in a short space of time, you can develop feelings of discomfort or fatigue which would become associated with the habit. Mm. And that would tend to almost like the, you know, your body would be punishing itself for engaging the habit. So if you keep typing HTHT like a hundred times, that you, it gets quite tiring and it becomes kind of unpleasant after like 20, 30, 40 times that you're doing it. And so your nervous system again is like, I don't want to do this anymore. I've had enough of this, it's overkill. It reminds me a bit of, you know, everybody's had one of those friends at school who's, who's been like, yeah, no, the first time my mom saw me smoking a cigarette, she like made me smoke an entire yeah. pack. And then I never had one ever again. Like I never used to believe those stories. I but did like that to myself by accident. <laughs> my, when I was a young guy, I smoked cigarettes. And one day I smoked about 40 and I was sick as a dog. For like, <laughs> like, and I did that, I'll tell you, like, I told you I did that with whiskey. <laughs> like, I, don't, I still don't really like uh, scotch. Because when I was a kid, I raided my dad's drinks cabinet and drank all of his whiskey. Oh. And uh, when I was like 14 or 15 or something like that. And after that, the smell of whiskey just mm -hmm. made me gag mm -hmm. to this day. Like, do you think uh, that's, that's interesting, but do you think that has to be done when you're young versus now? No, it's an adult. We have research mm. studies showing, like, for example, uh, typists, but people um, doing other uh, experiments in psychology the, where we know we can see adults extinguish habits by repeating them in this way. I would say, I think the other one, the habit reversal technique, or the, the, the fist clenching, or it could be you pressing your, it could be anything that's incompatible with it. You could press your hands on, on your lap or something like that. That approach, I think, is probably more reliable, but negative practice also works. And for some people, mm. it, it, it's quite natural. Mm -hmm. um, Dunlap and people like that used it for things like um, even things that seemed involuntary like blushing. So people that compulsively blush, they would say, what I want you to do is like to try really hard and make yourself blush. Huh. So like every time you're in a social situation, just keep focusing on trying harder and harder to force yourself to blush. And it seems like sometimes the voluntary effort 
can actually inhibit the, the mm. habit from taking place. <laughs> Imagine it makes it like 10 times worse and you have the worst blush of your life and you're trying to do it on a date <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh, okay. Generally speaking with this, if you repeat something many times in a short space, I'll tell you something even weirder, right? And this was only really... A psychologist called Titchener discovered this at the beginning of the 20th century, but we didn't, you know how some people discover something, you don't know what to do with it. So Titchener found that if you repeat a short phrase or a, a word over and over for about a minute, rapidly aloud, it starts to feel kind of meaningless. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are like, that's weird, but so what? And then about 10 or 20 years ago, psychologists figured out you can actually use this in therapy. So you can get people um, who have all sorts of negative thoughts or worries. And my favorite example is nobody likes me, Lally. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go and eat worms. Like it's a kid's nursery <laughs> rhyme, but it's not dissimilar to the, the, the core beliefs that people have in clinical depression. Hmm. So if I say nobody likes me, everybody hates me, 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 nobody likes me, everybody hates me. If I do that for like 10 seconds, it's pretty annoying. So we know the optimum self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. is 45 seconds. There's loads of research on these sort of techniques. And so if you do it for 45 seconds, after a while you go, it just sounds weird when I say it now. I can have the thought, I can say it, but I don't feel the emotions anymore. Like, oh, wow, you know, cool. I, I'm kind of, I feel a sense of, we call this verbal diffusion is the technical mm. term. So and I'm able to talk about the fact that nobody likes me, but I just kind of like, seems like I'm talking about somebody else having that thought. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I have a sense of detachment mm-hmm. from it. And there are other reasons why that, um, I won't delve into explaining the reasons for it, but there, there are a number of reasons why it has that effect. And it's actually quite a common technique. So the last thing I want to mention is uh, old ladies. Um, Because there's this thing in behavioral psychology called the grandma rule. And it comes from a a behavioral psychologist called Premat. And I think it was initially discovered in animal training, right? So many of the most robust techniques are the ones that behavioral psychologists go, this works even with hamsters, right? This even works with rats and pigeons and stuff. So it's definitely going to work on you. Right. So like, there are things that are so basic, they're kind of ingrained in our nervous system. And, and the Premax principle takes advantage of that. So it's very simple. If you want to build a habit, there are many ways of building positive habits. But a very simple one, one of my favorite ones, is they would look at things, rather than giving yourself a simple reward, like a bit of candy or whatever, people kind of struggle sometimes to think of effective rewards. It seems a bit overly simplistic. And so the Premac principle says, look at behaviors that are frequently occurring. So you look at your chimpanzee and you think, what does it actually do all day, right? What does it do all day, Scott? Scratches its ass, right? So you say to the chimpanzee, you're not allowed to scratch your ass anymore unless you solve the jigsaw puzzle first, then you can scratch your ass, right? (laughs) And so the the chimpanzee is like, oh, I really want to scratch my ass. Like, and I normally you let me do this all day long. Like, so it, it goes, I better solve the jigsaw puzzle and then I can scratch it. And you can scratch your ass as much as you like. Like, you can scratch your ass all day long if you want, but you have to solve a jigsaw puzzle first every time, right? 
And so this works in humans as well. So if I'm, um, I might say, I'm not allowed to have my lunch unless I've written a thousand words on a chapter that I'm working on. But a better example would be, um, you know, you're not allowed to watch TV. You make, you make a rule for yourself. It says, I can watch as much TV as I like, but I have to do 20 press-ups first. Or I have to go to the gym for half an hour first or whatever it is. Or I've got to do my yoga first. Once I've done my yoga, I can watch Netflix, right? Or I can check Instagram, but only after I've kind of prepared some healthy meals or something. Social media is a great one. So you can say, you can do as much social media as you want. Like, but each time you go on to check your social media, like beforehand, you have to do like some exercise or you have to do something healthy or you have to do a little bit of work or something that you're trying to increase the frequency of. Mm-hmm. So it's called the grandma rule because everyone's grandma says you can watch TV after you do your homework or you can have pudding, but you have to eat, finish your greens first, right? So you make a high frequency behavior or highly desirable behavior contingent upon something that you're trying to make into a new habit, basically. Mm-hmm. And you, you can you don't even need to think about things that you enjoy doing. It could just be things that you do frequently because the chances are the things that you do frequently, you're going to feel like doing. Like you might say to yourself, um, yeah, like just checking social media, mm-hmm. something you do frequently. Mm-hmm. If you look at your daily routine and go, yeah, I do that a lot. Go, well, from now on, I'm only allowed to do that after I've written a thousand words or mm-hmm. something and an essay that I'm working on, um, or, you know, maybe, uh, what do you do? What's something that you do frequently? Have we covered, we've covered social media, we covered TV. Um, Cover dog uh, scratching. Thinking yeah. about, yeah, thinking about Kate Bush. Like, I think oh. about Kate Bush frequently. Like, so I could make a rule to myself. So now you're only allowed, like, to, think only about Kate allowed Bush to think about Kate Bush if you have a conversation with Lalia about yes. Greek tragedy first. I have to talk to Lalia about Greek tragedy first. And then I can, I can think about Kate Bush as many times as I want, but only if I've spoken to Lalia about Greek tragedy first. He's got to do his homework so, first. So the grandma rule, and then I've got like the same slide from a graphic novel again. But anyway, so there you go, Scott. That's like Socrates, Antigone. Like, and cutting edge, evidence-based, like, psychotherapy for habit-breaking. From the man that brought you how to potty train yourself. How, from the man that brought you how to potty train a Roman emperor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've covered all sorts of generations and years and centuries with habits. And basically, it comes down to one word, moderation. Who'd have thought it? Who'd have thought all of it comes down to that. Simple. Okay, John, Donald, I got a task for you. I want you to, I'm going to randomly pick names from this list and they're going to have to use one of the tools you've mentioned, right? So you've said one of them, you know, scratch your ass one, whatever. And I'm just going to, people will comment and you're going to try it. Because I think people are listening, but get, are, are people trying these things? I haven't tried all of them yet. I've tried worry postponement technique, which works. Uh-huh. a lot but i haven't tried all behavior therapy techniques work basically it's the cognitive therapy techniques are a lot of that like behavior therapy techniques they're all rock solid basically pretty much they've all been we, they nailed them all in the 1970s like i feel like we were better at psychotherapy in the 1970s in some ways weirdly hmm. like but uh yeah like i mean they could all do um the habit reversal technique it's pretty robust like 
you know, find something that you want, like, you want to break, and then make yourself a one minute, like clench your fists every time you notice that you're even beginning to. So that's habit it. reversal. So Suzanne Tipping, that is what you're doing, okay? Habit reversal. Name another one, Donald. Or name name another one quickly. The choice of Hercules, like so, visualizing uh, these two paths and the status quo versus like self-discipline, like changing your habits and contrasting the long-term consequences in your mind. Like maybe doing that every day to motivate yourself, like to make a behavior change. Tyler. That's for you because That's I know you're looking at the five-two diet, I, th I think, and you're looking at because things get boring. Think about the two paths, choice of Hercules. That's for you. So, uh, Suzanne, you're on it. Okay, one more, Donald, for someone, well, for some lucky. I do negative practice, but I'll do the word repetition technique because mm -hmm. I kind of like that's about that's a lot bit more state of the art. Like so, taking uh, a negative thought or a limiting or negative belief usually like a short sentence, like, you know, something that's kind of limiting or like it's troubling you and then repeating it out loud as quickly as you can for approximately 45 seconds, like maybe, you know, once a day. Okay. Jess Lambert, that's on you. Okay. No messing about. Okay. Donald, give me some more. Give me some more. There's people wanting some more. So <laughs> we're handing out stuff here. Oh my God. Like from the Anything. time that we just pretty much principle, like mm. so, like you know, make a rule, a hard and fast rule to yourself that you're only allowed to do something that you do a lot, like go on social media, um, or you know, snack. If you mm. first do a habit that you're trying to create, like doing you know yoga for ten minutes or like twenty squat thrusts or something like that. <laughs> Old school, like, uh, yeah. so, like, uh, yeah, like, uh, the, that'll go to Susan Vickers, the Irish. That's for you. See, we get this is great giving homework to people. Mind Donald, did you do the homework from last week looking at that study? <laughs> do you remember? What was the study? I spoke about that study, and you were like, Are you giving me homework? <laughs> on oh, these yeah, you did, did you send it to me? <laughs> no, I didn't oh, send it. With a silly, well, with a silly accent as well. Are we doing the silly accent when we're doing the? Uh, what was the silly accent one? Is that the one? The worry Your finger. The Ooh. worry finger. But oh, when we're doing that on my accent, it could be your accent. Like when we go, when we're worrying about something, and we go, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, everybody. <laughs> like, and so you oh, worry. You, you have to put it in your like. You have to get your finger to move like a little finger ball. That is hilarious. That is hilarious. You're like, you can give it like a Mickey Mouse voice or whatever. So you can worry as much as you like, but it's got to be like your finger that's saying it. Like the hand. It's like getting a little hand puppet to do it or something. Yes. I used to have a hand puppet in my consulting room. I think it was Sooty. Like, so I get people to put like Sooty and then get Sooty going. Sooty you're a fool. That's you're so funny. Like, you're still, like, you're doing this, but you just get suited to do it, right? Oh, my days. Yeah. Like, you, you did what? You did a Sean Connery accent, didn't you? Last <laughs> we wanted to, I wanted to, he's dead now, but I wanted to get him to do a documentary about dinosaurs. Like, <laughs> so that he could say, the Stegosaurus. 
and uh, Triceratops. <laughs> and uh, dinosaurs are thousands of years old. Like the Brontosaurus is my favorite. Like, like that. Um, but you can glad. have uh, like a different a Jamaican accent or a Scottish accent or whatever. You can, if you worry in a different accent, it tends to... Uh, <laughs> I love that one. People love that one, Donald. They 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 yeah. like that one. What a you think about stuff, right? But it just doesn't have the same emotional impact on you. What a what what have you got for Billy Joe Davis? He's he's put his hand up. He wants he wants he wants a sweep. Well, we're kind of running out of techniques, I think, from the presentation that we did today. But we can do the view from above. View so from like above. you know, just, yeah, like honestly, like if you just do that every day, like you'll become. Uh, like perfect sage, like you'll like you become enlightened. Like so, just imagine like Lalia, like just imagine like you're looking down on the world from seen up uh, from above and picture everything within a, a much broader spatial and temporal context. I like that one. I actually did a similar post on that today, Donald, on my Instagram about the weight loss journey. Because if you look at only like three days or one day, and your weight goes up, or if you zoom out. You know, your weight is going up and down all the time, but the trajectory is down. But you can only mm. see that if you take the view right. from above. That's right. Mm. I saw that. Yeah, saw, yeah, yeah, I saw yeah. that on your Instagram or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, I do. I'm down with the kids. I do actually have Instagram. Yeah, you've right. changed. You've, 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 you've adapted. You've got your name on it now, which is nice. good. So people can yeah, actually come. And uh, I've got the Instagram now. Like, I got it. I you're going to be an influencer. You're going to start selling those like finger puppets. You know, you're going to yeah. get a sponsored post. <laughs> okay, make Negative thought them. finger puppets. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I reckon though, you could, you could really do some from all of these techniques. Can you, you could have like, you know, the bird to remind you to do the view from above. You could have your worry hat and your little finger puppet. Yeah. You could have your ass scratching hand to remind you, you know. <laughs> do you know you could mean? have your club to remind you to behave like Hercules. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! But I think we're making. We've got some million oh, ideas. I, literally, I used to do that. Like, also, Albert might. I'll tell you another technique, right? It's fine. There's a lot of crazy techniques in therapy. That some of them are just crazy, and some of them are crazy techniques, but they're quite good. So I think it was Albert Ellis that did this, like, or someone else, one of the other guys that did REBT. They'd have like a big inflatable mallet. You know, these big toy like Timmy mm -hmm. mallet had. You know, mm -hmm. the big inflatable mallet. And so when people were like self-critical, they say you, you, you can carry on self, being self-critical, but you, you have to hit your head with the mallet, you say it. So you'd be saying, oh, I'll never be as good as other people. Like, and you're like, it's, so you carry on being a self-criticism is law on, but only on condition that you simultaneously hit yourself in the head with a big like plastic big mallet. Big blow up mallet. Like, and did that work as well? Yeah, like usually people are like, yeah, okay, it does seem a bit pointless doing this now. Like, <laughs> yeah, I get, I get I get the idea. It's like, it's oh, the things we got to do to trick our own mind, you know, when you think of it, eh? we're, we're tricking ourselves to do these things. It's weird. I'll tell you another weird therapy technique that's pretty cool. And actually, this I'll tell you weirdly, Albert Ellis swears, and he's gone now, like he died a while back, but he swore blind that he invented this technique called the shame attacking exercise, right? In REBT, and uh, they call it the banana walk. You can make, you can find it if you do like REBT banana walk on YouTube. 
So you get a banana and you tie a bit of string around the end of it. And then you have to walk through a shopping mall, like <laughs> taking the banana for a walk, like it's a wee dog. <laughs> like, and the idea is if you do this over and over again, you get desensitized to people laughing at you, right? <laughs> so you overcome your sense of being ashamed. Like, so you don't really give a shit. And I'll tell you, weirdly, when you train in CBT, they make you do stuff that's like that. Like, I was lucky. I got off lightly. I just had to kind of collapse or something and, like, waterloo. But somebody, <laughs> one of the guys had to go into a pharmacist and ask them if they had any extra small condoms. <laughs> like, and, uh, <laughs> like, practicing a, like, shamelessness. Oh, my days. And, uh, that's class. Yeah. That's, like, my, that's, my, that's my job tomorrow now. Shame attack. <laughs> like, you don't shit. But I'll tell you what's weird. Like, I don't know. Like, Ellis didn't seem to know this, right? There's a swear. There's a passage in Diogenes Laertes or something like that where he says that one of the cynics, like Diogenes the cynic or maybe Crates, one of the other ones, got people to get a bottle and tie a bit of string around the neck of it, like take it for a walk in the no, Keramicus. No. Like, so Albert Ellis, like either he read that and forgot or it's just a coincidence. But they had an ancient Greek thing that's virtually identical to the banana. Wow. wow. Like, and, I like uh, that task. Who yeah. are we giving that task to then? Who's well, then gonna... oh, I somebody? It's a quite hard. That's advanced. That's advanced. Oh, that's advanced. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. You can't go straight to boss level. I'm, wait, I'm putting someone on here. I'm going to pick someone on. Yeah. I want photo wait. evidence. Oh, I've, things like that. I've done that. I used to walk yeah. up to people and ask them what year it was. And like, <laughs> Yeah. Because you didn't know, or because you've been told to do that. just to do that, like for shame attacking. So you're like, I don't know, I give a shit anymore. Like, <laughs> and when I was giving presentations, like for social anxiety, I'll, I'll tell you stuff that I've done right. So for social anxiety, I would deliberate. I won't do it right now, right? But often I would um, oh, just knock over a glass of water or something while I'm talking, like because people tell you oh, I'm really worried that I might lay an alcoholist on purpose. I always I'd knock up the flip chart, which is crazy. Like, it makes a real kind of like clap, like a noise. It used to freak everyone out. So I just kind of like turn around and knock over one of those big flip chart things. And I'd be like, oh, oops. Like, you know, to, to kind of desensitize it so you don't really care. And and to deliberately go, um, oh, I've forgotten the guy's name. What's he called? Like, so I deliberately forget a word or a name. Because people are like, oh, what if I forget something when I'm giving a presentation? Mm. So you'd be like, well, so what? If you forget something when you're giving a presentation, it's not the end of the world. Like, what happens if you deliberately forget stuff just mm -hmm. to kind of get over yourself? Like, so you're used to it. So I would do that. I'd be like, oh, yeah, like, um, uh, what's that thing called again? And like, no one cares, really, right? <laughs> no. You get the name or something. And um, all right, I'll tell you my most extreme example. Oh. <laughs> So in Harley Street, I had to stop doing stuff a bit on Harley Street because I worked there for a long time and I did a lot of... Whoa, 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 whoa. You worked on Harley Street in London, yeah? Yeah, for a long time. Did you? And, yeah. My, and uh, I used to go out and I'd take people out to... He'd, to, he'd bring to, his banana into work yeah. with him and, you know... <laughs> like, no, no, like, because I had a tarantula in the drawer in my consulting room. I shared it with Real? Uh, yeah, but it was dead. Oh, like, oh. So, but I kind of forgot that other people shared the root light. So there were people like, yeah, that's a tarantula in the door. And I was like, oh, yeah, I use that for phobias and stuff, right? Like, so I made the oh. clients with a paper, get them to kiss it. And I'd be like, 
what are the chances you're going to kiss the tarantula? And there'd be like zero chance. And then by the end of it, like, they'd be kissing the tarantula. Oh my god! No, no, like no way. It was the closest I could get. I had a lot of weird stuff like that. But right, my, my favourite thing that I did was, and I did this quite a lot, so I saw clients that had irritable bowel syndrome, right? And so part of it is the fear that they're going to lose control of their bowels in public sometimes, right? And uh, they'd be like, oh, that would be really embarrassing. Like, and you'd be like, well, would it though? Like, is it really that big a deal, actually? Right? And like, well, it is, Donald. Like, you know, and so we kind of, like, talk through it and what it'd be like. And so a lot of places I've been on Oxford Street, Regent Street, like, um, and so I would role model, like I'd go first and then the, cl the client has to do it, right? So I'd go in places and I'd go, I'm really sorry, <laughs> but I'm, and this is really embarrassing to have to say, but I've, I've got this bowel problem and I've, I've kind of allowed you, I've sort of lost control of my bowels a little bit. Is there any chance I could use your bathroom just to clean up? Like, no. I, um, I, I just feel so awkward about this, Lalia, and it's really hard <laughs> to tell anyone. And you would go back uh, to the shop assistant. Over and over again, right? And the nicest one, there was a guy went in Soho in a sex shop and told the assistant, and she was really, she was like, oh my God, like, she was really, really helpful. Like, oh. That was like the nicest I one that ran a shop selling dildos and vibrators and stuff. <laughs> super compassionate about it, right? Like. Um, and then other people just look at you like you're crazy, and then other people are like, oh, um, you, know, they, you know, we're not allowed to. And like, oh, so, what? Yeah, it's like, we're not allowed to. It's staff only. Like, you know, so I, I did that quite a lot. That's yeah, mental. Over anxiety, Scott, where you've got to kind of expose yourself to it. You you um, do really well on um, practical impractical jokers. You know that show where uh, they do stuff. You need um, you need you would do really well in there. I think we should do a series. I tell you my big insight as well. I invented a therapy technique, like a little one, right? Probably invented a few actually, but this is my favourite one, right? So to do exposure therapy for social anxiety is kind of sometimes a little bit tricky because people that are socially anxious. What they're really anxious about is other people realizing that they're socially anxious, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, how are we going to artificially like, induce that? I can we replicate it, right? And I thought, I thought about this for a while. Like, I thought maybe you could tell people you're socially anxious. It's a bit weird. Like, I guess you could do it. Like, and then one day I was like, boom, solved it, right? I know how to do this. Like, it suddenly came to me. I was like, I know exactly how to do this, right? And so I'd have clients that have severe social anxiety, and I'd be like, what would you say if I told you that I want you to walk into like a coffee shop in, uh, in Soho and speak to everybody that's there and say, excuse me, everyone, excuse me, everyone. I was in here earlier and I think I might have left behind a book <laughs> and I was wondering if anyone found it, right? <laughs> and it's a book called How to Overcome Social Anxiety. <laughs> like, I'm blushing, right? And I thought, because in doing that, you have to admit that you've got social anxiety and broadcast it to a whole room full of people. Mm -hmm. And can I really draw it? And then people are going, well, I don't know. What's it called again? Overcoming Social Anxiety. All oh, right, that one, yeah. So like, you have to kind of like really confront the social anxiety. And if you do that repeatedly, you'd be sensitized to it. So I would do it, and then the clients would copy me. The only thing was after a while, like people are like, 
that guy came in here a couple of weeks ago <laughs> and he said the same thing, but he was with somebody else back then, right? So I had to move offices. Like, <laughs> but, uh, that's why I'm, that's, and that's Scott is why I emigrated to Canada. Yeah, you need to keep, keep completely <laughs> <London. laughs> right. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of is that guy that does the um, how he helps men go on dates and stuff, or the pickup artists and stuff like that. Isn't that what all they do? Is like you go into a bar, you speak, it's like that film, what's it called? Crazy Stupid Love. Have you seen it? That's you. You're Ryan Reynolds. You are Ryan Reynolds. Albert Ellis, the guy that founded REDT, who, like I said, has passed, he went to Central Park and he couldn't get a date. So he said, I'm not leaving until I've asked out or asked for the phone number a hundred women. Right. And so he asked a hundred women, and I think he said he got like one phone number or something. <laughs> like he was okay. like, really, but but he was like, uh, and I think he like the women he phoned, like, you know, she didn't answer or something like that. But mm-hmm. like so he didn't have a good success rate. But he said, nevertheless, by the end of it, he didn't really give a shit anymore. Like, and he's completely desensitized to his anxiety about yeah. uh, approaching attractive women. Like, and then he got arrested for like harassing people in the park or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Who's this guy? <laughs> Every day. But he, um, no, he was like, he was really anxious about uh, speaking to people. And he just said, oh, is there any chance I can get your phone number and give you a call later? I'd like to ask you out on a date or whatever. Like, you think it's not a big deal, but he was like shy. He was scared to do it. Mm. Like, he did that a hundred times. It's a numbers game, it's man. It's a numbers game. Uh-huh. Uh, so, well, it's a numbers yeah. game. What? So, obviously, we'd all love to walk around with a crazy Scottish man named Donald Robertson telling us to do stuff because we'd feel confident next to the big dog. That's Don. my life. Yeah, see, you can you can walk around Athens, do whatever you want. What if you're on your own? I think if I'm with my best mate, I feel like invincible, you know? I don't mind getting embarrassed, my friends next to me. Do you know what I mean? How do we sort that out? Hmm. Is it practice? Like, you know, if you if you do embarrassing things, you get used to it. It doesn't really bother you hmm. anymore. Like you have to make an effort to overcome your fears. Like all yes. excellent things, Scott, are as difficult as they are rare. Like Spinoza said that all excellent things are as difficult as they are rare. So sometimes you've got to, you have to pay a price. You've got to make an effort. Like, you've got to go out and do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. But the, the benefits of it are enormous. Like, because mm. one of the biggest obstacles in life is inhibition uh, and shyness. Um, like, it, you know, it holds people back. It destroys their life throughout the whole life long. So the day they die, like, they never did half the things they could have done because they were too shy. They didn't want to ask someone on a date or whatever. Like, but it's by getting outside your comfort zone like, and making a conscious effort to do even small things, like gradually over time, you become more self-confident and less inhibited. But I should, yeah. should allow you yeah. to go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave, leave you with Donald and because uh, he has many more, many more stories to tell you. But um, thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, it was you. lovely to see you. Thank you for and joining us, yes. Thank you to all the beautiful people who... Yes. Listen to a bit of Kate Bush. Yeah. Yes, they loved it. Thank you. And, uh, are you are you coming back next week or? Well, if 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 I get asked, if John if Donald, yeah, no, no, yeah. no. Maybe. Only, only by public demand, Scott. Like, <laughs> <if there's laughs> any, 
there's any interest. She's gonna you're gonna have to walk a banana, unfortunately, around yeah. Athens. Walk the banana into if you the walk, webinar. If you walk the banana, then we'll let you come back. We'll let you come okay. back. Thank you so much. Bye Appreciate everyone. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Yeah. The big Donald. Donald. What if what if someone gets so freaked out by one occasion? Like you said, uh-huh. and then you run away from it yeah. and it makes it worse. They, surely they got to do these things with someone. They could do. Like, you've just got to be careful you don't become too dependent on, mm. uh, we call that safety-seeking behaviour in therapy. So like you, maybe initially you'd have someone with you, but you need to wean yourself off that pretty quickly. Because, for example, like people, a lot of people who have panic attacks and stuff, they're always like clinging on to someone at oh, like they become addicted, dependent to, to having a, a, a safe person with them to protect them. And then that's a problem in itself, right? You need to get rid of all, you need to throw away all your crutches, right? But the other way you can do it is if there's something that happens and it goes really badly, you review it in your mind. Um, and you have to be careful how I explain this because this technique can backfire unless it's, it's one of the most reliable techniques in therapy, but you have to do it properly. So... If there's something that kind of was anxiety provoking or embarrassing, if you visualize it and relive it for repeatedly for a prolonged period of time, then eventually you, the anxiety will go away, you'll habituate to it. So with a client that I'm working with, say they might say they say, oh, um, asked someone out on a date once and, and they just humiliated me like and said something really uh, kind of embarrassing to me in front of my friend. Now I'm like super embarrassed like to do it. So you, if there's a vivid memory of something like that that happened, you you would say, well, make it into a movie clip and shut your eyes and just replay it in your mind um, and go over it like until your anxiety has reduced to a kind of negligible level. So like the anxiety will wear off with repeated exposure. And so once you've done that to the memory, like then make sure you go out it should be easier now like to go out and confront the situations. Um, mm. So like mentally reviewing things is a powerful technique. Where it backfires is if people do it, don't do it for long enough. So they just visualize it a little bit and then they stop because it's kind of freaking them out. You have to kind of be patient and persevere with it for the, the, the feelings to habituate is the word we use like, and, and wear off naturally. And often that requires like a, maybe a, like a therapist helping you. Or sometimes it's easier if you're listening to an audio recording that kind of talks you through visualizing something. But uh, we call that imaginal exposure therapy. It's one of the most reliable techniques in, in psychotherapy, actually. But really, the main thing is get back in the saddle. Like you get out there, you put yourself. You can also do what's called constructing a hierarchy of exposure, right? Um, the only reason I'm using technical terms is, is you know, I'm not just pulling this stuff out of thin air, right? <laughs> like, There's stuff that we actually do, there's research studies on, right? So, um, and that means like, say somebody goes, well, I'm really nervous about asking women out on a date or just pick an example like that. Um, and it seems like 10 out of 10 anxiety, you get them to rate it on a scale, 10 out of 10 anxiety, I wouldn't be able to do it. So you might go, okay, if you really think that's too much, start off, um, create like maybe a list of five things. So if that's 10 out of 10, what would be eight out of 10? Oh, well, like maybe just, going up to a, a, a man or a woman that I find attractive and, and maybe like asking them what time it is or something like just initiating a, like starting a conversation with them at least. Um, and then what would be like five out of, five out of 10 
um, would be, or maybe even if I just shut my eyes and kind of visualize doing it, that makes me a little bit anxious or whatever, right? And so you create a graduated hierarchy of exposure. Like, so there's like a ladder and you pick, there's an easy thing, a medium thing and a difficult thing. And you do the easy thing. Like until, you know, and that might be just visualizing it or maybe watching someone else do something or maybe watching a video clip of it on YouTube repeatedly or, you know, uh, doing something in a kind of partial way. Like, and then you build up to doing the, the kind of 10 out of 10 thing that's the most anxiety provoking. But by that point, it'll have gone from 10 out of 10 down to 8 out of 10 or 7 out of 10, hopefully, because mm. some of the anxiety will have been removed from it because you've already done things that are similar. So, like, if you've got a phobia for, um, what's a big dog, like a Rottweiler, like, maybe you'd start off by taking your neighbor's poodle for a walk or something. You know, if you've got dog phobia, so you start off, you can create a hierarchy. So, you go, well, poodles are, like, three out of ten, and then Labradors are five out of ten, and then, like, Alsatians are, like, nine out of ten, and Rottweilers are, like, ten out of ten, and I don't like them. So you go, well, like, start off with the sausage dogs, like, and the poodles, <laughs> right? And then once you've mastered that, like, we'll work up to Labradors. And then once you've done that, you'll probably find that the Doberman Pinchers and the Rottweilers will be, like, all come down a little bit anyway. Like, and, uh, and then you, you need to work on those eventually as well. But whatever you do, everyone's favorite coping strategy is avoidance. So you just got to be really careful that people aren't looking for other strategies as a way of avoiding, like, dodging, like, doing the like the main thing because there's a technique also called flooding um that we know works pretty well which is just where you get people to do the most extreme anxiety provoking thing and just wait a lot for a really long time like wait long enough until the anxiety wears off and uh like but nobody wants to do that right but actually it generally it works like when people do that although it's probably better if it's in a slightly controlled way like there's a therapist supervising it like, like, not like, and you know, Indiana Jones, he's got a snake phobia and he, he gets dropped in that thing for like uh, the crypt and it's full of like thousands of snakes and all that. That would be like flooding, right? Yeah. But you wouldn't just do that to, you wouldn't, you probably just wouldn't do that to yourself. It's probably better if it's like organized under the supervision of a, a therapist. And when normally what you do is construct a hierarchy. So you go, well, let's start off with, not even with baby steps. You usually start at least halfway up the hierarchy. So you start with something that's maybe six or seven anxiety. It's a rough general, a rough guide. And then you work up to things that are a bit higher. What about in a, so what about like in a social scenario? So apparently we might go back to normal in June. Nobody's really seen other human beings for a while. We go to our first party, Donald, right? We're going to our first party. What's, yeah. what's like a level one thing? Is that something like, like, how can we introduce with a friend? Is that level one so it's comfortable? And then are we saying, like, level threes? Well, it depends on the individual. You ask them how they feel about it, and then you mm-hmm. construct a hierarchy. It could be you just brainstorm stuff. Like, you say, you know, maybe, um, you know, like, uh, just being part of a conversation where someone else is doing the talking. Maybe just kind of, like, introducing yourself. Maybe asking somebody a question about what they're talking about, what they're interested in, um, you know. Like maybe asking something. It's quite a good plan to go somewhere if you've got anxiety, social anxiety, be like, right, this is what the five levels are. It's amazing how anxious people get about stuff that, do you know, there are many things that help. And it's one of the biggest, like I I used to love working with social anxiety because I feel like it's not like spider phobia. I mean, if you overcome your spider phobia, you're going to be more 
confident in general, but it's not going to change the world, Scott, right? But social anxiety really is something more philosophical. It's deeper. It's about people, like, and how you interact with society and stuff, right? And, you know, I really, I think um, it's very powerful. Like, you know, the way that we think about it, we put too much value in one person's opinion. Like, when I, when somebody, like, if I'm a writer, uh, for example, I get reviews, right? So you read your reviews. Like, if you have, I don't know what other, like, hundreds of reviews. I've got 12, 1,200 or something uh, Amazon ratings reviews. And then Goodreads, like, thousands of them, right? So there's going to be somebody that thinks your book's shite or, you know, you're an idiot or you, they can't understand your accent or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like, so, uh, but when I see that, like, I kind of think, and this is just stating the truth. It's like the view from above. I go, that's one person's opinion out of 8 billion people or whatever, right? Uh, so if I think about it like that, I go, that guy's entitled to his opinion, right? And maybe I can even learn from it, but it is just one out of billions of potential opinions that other people might have and some might agree with and others won't about the thing like so you've got to kind of snap out of thinking it's the be all and end all right and it's the same with things like dating you ask someone out on a date and they maybe they laugh in your face or you know or they just they're not interested or whatever you've got to think it's a bit like saying there's plenty more fish in the sea but you have to kind of think to yourself well, there's only one person right mm. you know and there's like billions of other people that you haven't asked right and so you know it's not like the be all and end all. Like when you really kind of put that in your mind's eye, it, it dilutes it. You kind of think, well, it doesn't really matter that much. Because for all I know, maybe like billions of other people would say yes, right? Like I'll just pick mm. the wrong one. And a lot of the kind of, I'll let you in. I mean, I think you learn a lot in life just from getting older. I think that once you hit 40, you have a moral obligation to look back on your life and learn something from it. Mm. Like, you don't have any excuses now. You've hit 40, right? It's about time you sat down, had a word with yourself, and actually learned something like, <laughs> from your experience so far in, in life. And, uh, you know, like, I think uh, we learn simple things, you know, from our experience. Uh, like, you know, f like, f for everyone, that, um, there's always going to be people that criticize you. Always. No matter what you do. I look back in my life, some of the most successful, I, with, without a shadow of doubt, some of the most successful things that I've done, most important things I've done, I think every one of them, if I was to make a list of the top five most biggest uh, things I've done in my life, most important things, probably every single one of them, there were people telling me it was a stupid idea. True. Or it always comes from after a disaster. Do you know I mean after it comes after, like not a disaster, but a disaster at the time? Like, oh, I made this change after, you know, someone dumped me or this and that. I lost my job. They tend to do something and they knocks on the net. To... There's a lot of naysayers in the world. And, you know, yeah, a lot of them. And, you know, the thing you have to remember is if you have a new idea, like for a business or something like that, and everyone thought it was a great idea, then they'd, all, they'd be doing it already, right? So if you've got an idea and other people are, I don't really get it. Like they think it doesn't really work. It's a bad idea. That might be a good sign, right? They can't see how it's going to work. 
So you've maybe come up with something original and they're going to see how it works when you prove to them that it works. Why? But it's maybe a good sign if they don't, if they can't see it in advance, because they'd be doing it already if it was obvious. What you want is something and no one else could see how this could possibly work, but you know that it can, and then you're going to surprise them all. Like the book, you know, I told you, like a Roman Emperor, I wrote a book called How to Think. I'll tell you, maybe I didn't tell you the whole story. The first book proposal I did maybe 15 or 20 years ago, whenever it was, <clears throat> I submitted oh, you, a book. Well, so you, well, you, what part of your life are you on this? Because I want to know. So you were at a part of your life where you thought, do I have enough to say? Or you like... Like Harley Street. Like, and I was living in London. And... Uh, Nice. They, I'll tell you what happened, right? So the, the psychotherapist's organization said, there's loads of psychotherapists that would be good at writing books, the UKCP. And they said, but it's hard to get into publishing. So we've put together this little panel and we'd like you guys to submit a proposal and we're going to submit it to a publishing house. So I wrote a proposal for a book and I sent it to them and they turned it down. But the acquiring editor said, I thought your proposal was good. So you should submit it directly to the publisher. So I did, Scott. They turned it down. Right? <laughs> and so what a lot of people would do is, well, I just kept submitting it to like 50 publishers, right? That's the story usually. Yeah, and I never give up, never give up. And eventually some really crappy publisher took it and published. No, 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 no. Like that don't that's terrible advice, right? So I phoned them up, right? And I said, uh, I sent you a proposal and you turned it down. Not like, yeah, that's right. I said, so what sort of books do you want people to write? And they said, we'd really like someone to write a book called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. So I, I took the proposal that I did and I changed the title. And I, I didn't really change that much else about it. Right? I tweaked it a little bit and I sent it back to them. And they sent me my first publishing contract. Right? You are, you are, that's a good, that's very just like, you know, yeah. left, different, out the box thinking. Yeah, I, I thought, like I'm not going to keep submitting this and it keeps getting turned down. No, I'm just going to ask them what they want me to write. And I thought, it's pretty similar to what I was planning to do anyway. So, like, you know, I'll just change the title. But do you know what the title was that they turned down? What? How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. No. They're like, that's a rubbish title for a book. Like, ah. And then, like, 10 or 15 years or whatever it was later, eventually, I brought out a book with the same title, I swear. Why like, and uh, it sold a hundred thousand copies. Why like, so? It, uh, it 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 did uh, it did much better. Um, but I sat on that for like ten or fifteen years because uh, everybody told me it was a stupid name for a book. As well, there's a good quote in this. Like, so you sent, yeah, well, people, it's the same as uh, Henry. Henry Ford said, if I were to ask people what they wanted back in the day, they would have said that we wanted faster horses. Yeah, not, exactly. Not a car. So exactly. People don't know what they want. And uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to show. I had a friend that worked in design for a big car format, funnily enough. And he's, they, he used to say that. He'd say, people don't know what they want until you show them what they can, what they can have. You know, you, you know, the job of designers is to show people new things. They go, I didn't realize I wanted that until you showed me it. Um, yeah, people, exactly. the world is, is very limited. And even, you know, writing books about, when I first began studying Stoicism, people said to me, it's like a niche subject and nobody's going to be interested in it. Um, you know, why are you bothering to study this? And then that was like 25, that was 25 years ago now. And now it's like a quite a trendy thing. It's like in all the newspapers, it's like become a really big thing. I've got a whole kind of career out of 
talking about it. And I never expected that. It was by accident. But there were a queue of people like lining up to tell me it's a waste of time and nobody's interested in this. It's, it's, it's interesting because there's a, there's a copywriter called Eugene Swartz who's got a quote that says, you can't create mass designer. Um, mm-hmm. So he says, like, you can only funnel what the world was. So, like, even if you wrote that book out 25 years ago, nobody would have bought it. You could have done as much marketing as you wanted. It just wouldn't have worked. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's true. I'll tell you another example. Here's a very recent example. So we've got this conference called Stoicon X Women, right? Coming soon, like for women that are interested in stoicism and for everyone really. And so I, I knew this would happen, right? It's the most controversial event I've ever been involved in, right? Even like more than anything else, like for some strange reason, right? And so we, we when I first kind of teased it, like there's a bunch of people, all the people on social media are going, this is a terrible idea. Like you can't do that. Like, you know, oh, what, what a terrible idea. Like it's a great idea. Like it's going to do really well. And, you know, but the first, they couldn't kind of envisage it happening. And so we decided to do it anyway. Like, we're not going to listen to them, right? Like, and it's going to be one of our most popular events, I think. Like, it's already off to a really good start. Like, so people were like, well, does that mean men can't attend it? No, men can attend it as well, right? Or you're not going to have any men speaking at it? No, we've got men speaking at it as well, right? But it's mainly organized by women. Like, and it's mainly for women and it's predominantly female speakers because we thought it'd be nice to give women more of a platform to speak about stoicism because they're kind of a significant minority, like they're about 30% of the community. So it's not zero, like, but, you know, it's a substantial minority of people that are into stoicism, but they don't get their voices heard as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, most of the books are by men and stuff. And we thought, well, why not just have a conference and let all the women that we know that are interested in this subject kind of like get more prominence like kind of try and redress the balance a bit oh you can't do that it's a terrible idea well we've done it <laughs> tough like we just did it anyway like and uh, you know and it's a great idea we'll probably do it again same with the military one like i floated that idea people said to me oh, i don't think it's a good idea it's not i don't we can't really see how that's going to work stoke our next military i've got like about 40 speakers like, you know, it's just more and more people. Like, I got a new speaker today. Like, so we've got all these people coming forward, like, that want to be involved in it. Um, we've got uh, a Lieutenant General, Frank Kearney. Um, I've spoken to some uh, senior US generals as well. Um, and uh, Ryan Holiday speaking at it. We've got Nancy Sherman speaking at it, who's a, a professor at Georgetown University. So again, like people are like, oh, that doesn't seem like a great um, idea. I can't see how that would work. It's, work. it's already worked. I've done it. Like, but any good idea, there'll be people lining up to tell you, you know, it's never going to work. Like, All the time. But I think once you're 40 or whatever, you look back and you kind of think, but same with little things like relationships and stuff and, uh, you know, asking people out on dates and kind of getting criticism and rejection and stuff like that. You look back in your life and you think, well, really, did any of it actually matter that much? You know, it's just one person's opinion. And, mm. uh, you know, often you have to remember, I'm deadly serious about this. When you speak to, when you ask someone out on a date, when you ask somebody's feedback or opinion, right, you have to bear in mind, it's only one person. Like, there's billions of other people. You could have asked, like, there's a billion other people that you could ask out on a date. Like, there's a billion other, and, and they wouldn't have responded in the way, like, so you might just be unlucky. Um 
I used to say to novice, I used to train therapists and they would say, I'd say, what's the most important thing about getting off the ground with a therapist? And they said, well, confidence. We think we need to be confident. And I said, where do you think confidence comes from? Like, do you think it's just like, like magic or something like that? And they'd look at you blankly. It's like, oh, where's confidence? And I said, well, the main place that confidence comes from is experience, right? And what multiplies experience is feedback. Like, so if you do a lot of stuff, but you never get any feedback, you're not going to get confidence. So the thing that you're kind of scared of is people giving you critical feedback. But that's the main thing, actually, that will build your confidence. And one of the things that the trainee therapists would never do, they all work one-to-one -one individually with clients. And I would say you should work with groups at the beginning. Like even if it's running a workshop or doing group therapy or even giving talks, because then you get feedback from 20 or 30 people, not just one person. Mm. And the risk you take is, I see it all the time. So a therapist will work with a client and they say, I'll teach you this negative practice technique or habit reverse or abuse from above. And the client will say, I didn't really work out for me. And the therapist will go, well, I'm not going to bother doing that again. Like, and you think, well, maybe, you know, if it had been a, another client, they would have said that's the best thing since sliced bread, mm. right? So like, you need to be careful making generalizations based on one piece of feedback because it, it's just the luck of the draw, like, you know, potentially. And at the, when they're at the beginning, they're maybe a bit self-conscious or hesitant, and, you know, not like you're not as confident about doing stuff anyway, maybe less, you know, a little bit more hit and miss what they're doing. Like if you work with a, a group of people, like, what you potentially find is you teach them a therapy technique. If one person benefits from it, then there's a domino effect and everybody else starts to benefit from it. I remember I had a group in Harley Street and we were working on insomnia. And I gave them all a recording that we'd made to listen to at night. And there was like about six or seven people or something, just a little group. And they, they were older clients. And I have to say, often you'll find that older people are, not always, but sometimes like less like, willing to follow orders like take instruction or whatever, like people get a little bit, you can't teach an old dog new tricks kind of thing, people get a little bit more set in their ways as a bit older. Um, I think we all do to some extent. So we, I was working with people and we gave them the recording and we came back next week and I was like, how did you get on with the recording? And they're like, oh, I didn't bother doing it. I, I, didn't, I didn't think it would work or whatever. And then there was a, the youngest member of the group was like, came in and she said, I did that recording. I've never I slept like a log. It's like, you know, it's the greatest thing ever. Like I've never, you never had such an amazing night's sleep. You know, like I, I never thought I'd be able to get a good night's sleep again. And that's like, it's just like life-saving for me, blah, 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 blah. Right. Next week, everybody was using it. Right. Yeah. Cause they don't listen to me, Scott. <laughs> they don't listen to that guy. Right. But it's the power of testimonial or um, what do they call it? Um, social proof. Social, social proof. Uh, what was the, what was the uh, recording? Was it you were saying Sean Connery voice? Or? It was just me talking about dinosaurs and my Sean Connery voice for like 20 minutes. Um, no, it's like all relaxation techniques and stuff like that. Like, what would you, would you what recommend? App like Calm, Headspace, that, that type of stuff. I don't, I'm not, you know, like I'm so old now, Scott, that I never really used apps, therapy apps mm. and stuff like that. I can't, I've spoken to a few developers and things. So I'm not, I wouldn't claim to be an expert. I did work in developing e-learning and did research for the UK Department for the Environment, funnily enough, and kind of with the Department of Health a bit for developing um, software, like uh, online uh, website-based uh, for CBT, for stress. Um, but I've never, never really delved into apps that much. 
but I'm sure there must be. Um, there's a lot of potential in them. Reco audio recordings are the thing, I think. Like, yeah. audio yeah. recordings have a, a huge, if they're done properly, I've always believed and always found in my experience that they, I mean, I, I used to say to my students, honestly, like, it's the most underrated thing. Like, you know, like sometimes it might be the most important thing you do with a client is just give them a particular well-designed uh, audio recorder, like a proper one with uh, cognitive therapy techniques on it or whatever, and they can use that every day. Um, you know, it, it, it potentially it's a most powerful thing a therapist could do. Um, and I'm surprised it's not more widely utilized. Even some of the apps and things, I don't think make as much use of, of audio as they, as they possibly could. But yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely something I think people should be doing a lot more of. I do. Um, but the right sort of guided meditation, Scott? It's got to be right. I mean, I do daily. You from above is good. I do daily voice notes for the gang, but I'm not saying I do CBT. It's just me saying live one day at a time with some other bits. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, like you say that, I like the way you say that, Scott. Live one day at a time. I think that's going to be eventually when you get over your, your tattoo phobia, like, that's going to be that's going to be your tattoo. There. Oh, there, I've run for it. I'll do it for I'll other people, you know. I'll, I will live for others. Everybody, every time they see me, they'll say one day at a time. I've just made someone present, live in the present moment. What more can you give someone? To live in the present moment, I think actually that is very important. It's a key thing. Mark, the Stoics talk about this a lot. You know, Marcus Aurelius in particular talks about this idea of being in the here and now, like uh, grounded in the in the present moment. How will we, so, will we, so I reckon we can leave uh, uh, on this, this, on this on the here and now. Mm -hmm. What would you, what would you, what? I'll save, I'll save the next 20 next seconds 20 of what you're going to say. I want you to talk want about, the, talk here about the here and now and why we should live in the here and now. Seneca talks about this and he says something that's very beautiful. I read it and I thought this could have been written by a modern psychologist. Seneca says that animals like deer are grazing, they see a predator, they freak out, they defecate. Like they run away in anxiety. But then once the predator's gone, they return to grazing as if nothing had happened. And he says, but human beings, if that was you or me, we'd carry on worrying about it for days, weeks, months, maybe years afterwards. Like we worry about things that haven't even happened yet, hypothetically in the future. And we ruminate about things that happened decades ago in the past. Like, and Seneca says our greatest gift, our ability to reason uh, is also our greatest burden. Like, it's a double-edged sword. He's absolutely right about that. Like, and there are many things we can do about that, but one is just remaining grounded in the present moment because worry is all about the future. Like, and a lot of dep depressive thinking, morbid rumination is all about the past. Like, and, you know, it's not going to cure every problem, but many problems, like we know actually that, that pathological worrying uh, can be helped a lot by people just becoming more centered and grounded in the present moment. Um, when you worry, you ruminate, you forget about the here and now and you get lost in thought, like projecting into the past or into the future. And that, that's one reason why it's so important to become uh, grounded here and now. And that's where your locus of control is. You don't have any control in the future. You don't have any control over the past. Your sphere of control, the buttons you press, the levers you pull, are located right here now in the present moment. And so when you're not paying attention to that, like it's like you're taking your hands off the steering wheel like in your car, 
Like you need to watch what you're doing in the present moment in order to put your hands back in the steering wheel and actually remain in control of your own destiny. Ooh, that was powerful. That's for people to Because you used about destiny there. Like, that's just, that just reeled off. It's like, you do this all day, Scott. It's almost like I've been doing it for several decades. It's almost like, yeah, you're an expert. But I was, on, I was in obscurity. Like, it was, that was before the internet. Like, I used to just do it in a, in, in a, in a wee room. Like, nobody knew. Like, I was in a cave. Like, and then, and then I ended up, one day I ended up on the internet and the whole world then knew, like, about the, the wonder of uh, listening to me talk about Socrates. And Lalia, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who's, uh, we can talk about now she's gone. Like, but we'll get, like, she didn't, I don't know, did she, she said some Greek, she didn't say any Latin. Yeah. Like, yeah. we'll get her to, next time we'll get her to, like, maybe do a couple of lines of poetry in, in Greek or Latin or whatever. Yeah, let's do it. But yeah, I really enjoyed tonight, Donald. I appreciate your time and Lalia and all the, everything you're teaching us every week. People are out. It's a pleasure. And, Thank you, Scott. Uh, next week, obviously. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. I'll look forward to seeing you then. Yes. I'll let you know how your daily voice note does. See, I'll let you know. Maybe you can do some more features. Well, you might let me do like a few more features. That would be good. Well, now I'm on Instagram, right? I see the turtles. Like they tag me sometimes in their, uh, in their they tag the Instagram wrong stories. Sometimes I do use social media. I'm on. I'm normally on Twitter more, but uh, I've started to use Instagram. Your your Instagram's Donald J Robertson, isn't it? Yeah, that's me. People have been tagging this other Donald Robertson, and I'm like, it's not. Is he the artist? There's a yeah, famous artist yeah, called yeah, Donald Robertson. Yeah. That's great. I like it when people tag him because I get some of his business. Like the people, people emailed me and, and there was a guy interviewing me that thought that I was him. I think. Oh, no. And he was like, he was kind of like talking to me about all oh, like, you know, stuff about design and all that. And at first I was really confused. I was like, what's this guy talking about? And I was like, he thinks I'm the other Donald Robertson who's like interviewing me about it. Oh, um, well, well, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, well, let's, let's, everybody, everybody sleep well. I'll well. well, see you tomorrow. Donald, sleep like a log. Yeah, sleep like a log. Sleep like a baby. <laughs> sleep like a baby log. Get out of you. Nice one, Donald. How uh, uh, good uh, one I was. People loved it. Is, is, is Lalia back next week? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, it's good. Because we could bring Buddhism maybe next week. Are we? we know, are we doing some Buddhism? Just maybe cross reference. I can, yeah, mention that a bit. Yeah, bring in some Buddhism. Bring in a new mm-hmm. speaker. Yeah. Legend. I'll um I'll get back to the back to the email as well to those people across uh-huh. and uh, I'll post it. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, are you interested in that? I don't really know yeah. Scott when I do things. It's just yeah. she seems like it. I'll be honest. I posted about CrossFit and some people were kind of poo pooing it. They're like, oh, we don't think much of CrossFit, and then other people really liked it. So I don't know. The women I spoke to 